Welcome to Literary Hangover. I'm Matt Leck. With me is Alex Guns. Hello. And uh, today uh, is going to be in a, a sort of, well, change the schedule a little bit. We were going to do The Widow Ranter by Afroban, a play. We are going to do that uh, when we can reschedule with Grace. We've also haven't done an Orwell, Orweller episode in a while. Um, part of the reason for lack of episodes in general is just the extremely, um, extremely hectic uh, political campaign schedule, but looks like that <laughs> that got ended by the coronavirus. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't. Yeah, twenty twenty is a bit of a, a bit of a chaotic time. Yeah, um, but uh, luckily it looks like there might be an opening for podcasting. <laughs> yeah, and maybe Twitch streaming. So yeah. um, the plan for this show is originally I'm going to give it for members because uh, thank we I appreciate you guys so much and. Then I think I'm going to sometime during the week stream it as a sort of content while I play uh, maybe Half Life on the Literary Hangover YouTube channel. Uh, but yeah, today we are talking about a George Orwell work called "The Lion and the Unicorn: Socialism and the English Genius," originally published in 1941 uh, during the height of the uh, Blitz bombings the Nazis were uh, undertaking in London or all across the UK. And you get a sense from it right off the bat that this is this is written at a time similar to ours, actually, where the shit is hitting the fans, so yes. to speak. Yes. Uh, yes. Reading this, I mean, it's not the same, but the comparing the opening line and then when you said you wanted to do this one, which this has been on the books for a while, I pulled it up and I happened to be under like forced quarantine because of work. I I do not have the virus, thankfully, yet. But uh, where I work was shut down and we were forced to stay in our home and essentially not leave. So this idea that he opens with he's you know he's being and he's being bombarded outside by some violent force. I was like, honestly, same. Yeah, the very first line here uh, of the first essay, which is the one that it was the first one written in England, your England, and it's sort of an essay in its own right. Uh, Orwell sort of because of some of the predictions of imminent revolution he made in in this uh, book. He wasn't a huge fan of uh, it, and it wasn't republished in full until uh, 1968. But England, uh, Your England, like I said, the one we're covering today, uh, was a sort of essay in its own right, and it was republished in Such Such Were the Joys uh, in 1953. But I recommend getting this Penguin uh, Modern Classics little version of it if you want to read it. It's very small, but fits in like a pocket, which is uh, actually one of the reviewers. Um <laughs> He wasn't a great fan of Orwell's politics in the, in this, like, you know, it's touched some third rails, right? It's reclaiming patriotism for the left. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he did say the British publishers really have a good thing with these books that can fit in pockets. And I agree with that. I love books that can fit in pockets. I I would say that this, this one is probably the master, one of the, the master examples of its form, like as like a political essay, Mm -hmm. I think, but probably... I mean, there's plenty that I feel like I disagree with that we can hash out in this episode. But as far as like maybe one of his masterworks and like an expert stroke of of uh, political prose, I think it it is definitely one of his best works and one of the best works in English literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and as, as an expression of a political philosophy too. I, it it's a there are like I said like there are some this is a third rail still to this day. Like yeah. some of my favorite leftist podcasters have huge disagreements over uh, the place of nationalism yeah. uh, in uh, politics. And one of the reasons I wanted to do it today is, you know, we're, it's not entirely over for Bernie Sanders, 
But what I think can be said at this stage is, and Bernie admitted this recently, that he has failed uh, the electability argument yeah. compared to Biden. I think it's not because of, you know, voters like Biden's ideas more than his. I think exit polls show they all like, you know, Medicare for all. It's because of party signaling, right? All the people endorsed uh, Media Biden, Joe Biden would would have also... A lot of people think Biden would have won in 2016 and wish he ran instead of yeah. Hillary. Uh, he's also uh, has, obviously, Obama's, um, like, sort of that Obama relationship. Nonetheless, Bernie Sanders failed, but and one of the things that... I think we talk about, or I've I've spoken about on, you know, Michael Brooks show and Majority Report, but we talk about it here is Bernie ran, uh, he started with this speech about why he's a democratic socialist. And that, and I, that's what I sort of consider myself here. It's what George Orwell considers himself uh, until he died. Um, but it put itself in a European context when he could have, say, what if Bernie Sanders instead rejoined the party after 2016, but said, I'm doing this as a New Deal Democrat or some yeah. right. Um, it would have been a hollow identification because the party wouldn't have given him shit. Wouldn't have given him shit. But the vote that would have been enough signal to voters. I think. I mean, who knows, right? But that's the theory. I think that yeah. would. And and this is what I think. Orwell he looks at like sort of Mussolini and the Italian fascists used Garibaldi and that mythology, right? Yeah, they're using homegrown traditions and mythologies as political tools and the and this is basically how like how do you react to that do you try to do it yourself or is that a game you can't actually win Mm -hmm. so yeah the first line i don't know if i've read it yet as i write highly civilized human beings are flying or let's just play it from uh what's his name alex hyde white alex hyde white um i want to read from a book i have about um I really like by Philip Bound uh, called Orwell and Marxism, um, uh, the political and cultural thinking of George Orwell uh, basically talks about how much of his writing is um, in reaction to, you know, communist uh, Brits bound writes Orwell's decision to write about English identity was a direct consequence of the outbreak of the second world war. Uh, after opposing the drive to war in the late thirties, Orwell concluded in August, 1939, allegedly as the, re- allegedly as a result of a dream. And I believe that's in notes on nationalism, that dream um, um, uh, prophecy or whatever uh, that Hitler, that he would fight um, if Hitler came to Germany, basically, or if Hitler came to England, uh, that Hitler's Germany would have to be met by force in the event of it attacking England. Yet his attitude toward the war was different from that of practically everyone else on the British left. Unlike the communists who opposed the war between 1939 and 1941 and supported it enthusiastically thereafter, and his former comrades in the Independent Labor Party who opposed the war outright, Orwell argued that Hitler could not be defeated unless Britain immediately took the path of socialist revolution. Quote, a capitalist Britain cannot defeat Hitler, its potential resources and its potential allies cannot be mobilized. Hitler can only be defeated by an England which can bring uh, to its aid the progressive forces of the world. Uh, now, I'm going to replace the word Hitler uh, with the word coronavirus. And I'm going to replace Britain with America and read it again. Uh, capitalist America cannot defeat coronavirus. Its potential resources and its potential allies cannot be mobilized. Coronavirus can only be defeated by an English, which can bring to the aid progressive force of the world. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so it was a bit silly, but you got to get the point of the mm-hmm. um, current re- relevance. 
Uh, it was this highly idiosyncratic perspective, pro-war and pro-revolution at the same time, uh, which accounted for the basic themes of the line in the unicorn, Orwell's first major statement of English patriotism. On the one hand, as a supporter of the war, Orwell wished to make a straightforward case for the importance of loving one's country. One cannot see the modern world as it is unless one recognizes the overwhelming strength of patriotism, national loyalty, as a positive force, there is nothing to set beside it. On the other hand, as an advocate of immediate revolution, Orwell also wished to prove that a distinctly left form of patriotism has now become possible. This explains why so many of his patriotic writings were given over to a lyrical tribute to the qualities of the working class. At bottom, Orwell's implied argument was extremely simple. Since the common people already possess an outlook which inclines them towards socialism, uh, or at least to a muscular form of populist libertarianism, uh, there you see in Europe, socialism and libertarianism aren't opposed, um, <laughs> which is something that uh, you know has come up on the majority of a number of times. Uh, it is perfectly rational for the left to forge a new form of patriotism around its support for the working class. Instead of insisting that workers have no country, socialists should realize that it is precisely because of the workers that England is worth loving in the first place. Uh, do you now what? How are you reacting to this sort of argument so far? Uh, and then, I mean, do you have anything to say based on? You know, I started reading these essays uh, a couple years ago and then rereading them seriously for the podcast like a year ago and then rereading once again today uh, in like semi-quarantine. And I just think that um, his understanding of nationalism is one, he's giving it way too much power in my opinion. And also saying it's a positive good just seems in 2020 a little absurd, I guess, or, or, or has missed the mark when we've seen we're living in a world where nations have absolutely reasserted themselves in terms of like uh, 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 cultural units, whether it's America or Russia or the UK currently with Brexit to disastrous results, not just for the people outside the country, but for it's the citizens within the Commonwealth. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I, I mean, yeah, I've, I'll, I'll expand more on that. I just think that I think 2020 is a, is a repudiation of 1941 and Orwell's understanding of 1941. Yeah. I mean, I want to say like, I think the, the thing about, I, I, I don't know, like by positive force, I don't think he means that as a, a moral statement. Meaning that it gets things done basically. Right. Um, because he says like Christianity and international socialism are, weak as straw compared to it, but then like, Hitler and Mussolini control it. Like, he's definitely not saying like they're doing positive things with it. I think it just means like it can basically, it can put somebody in an air in a death machine and have him drop a bomb on somebody without really giving a shit. Right. And like, and I think like, actually I would say it's, it's when you look at like the Russiagate narrative, for instance, and how that like warped a certain class of liberals mind like like that stuff is I, I still think it does have a lot of potence. Um, but do you think that that I mean that in particular that like Russiagate thing actually had any kind of like serious benefit so far for, for like the people who are propagating that kind of like that kind of uh, thread? No, but I think Orwell would say uh, you shouldn't expect it to because of who is putting it to use. Right. Like I said um, um, from the beginning of the Russiagate thing that we should use this as a opportunity to tar all of global oligarchy. Right. 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 Um, whether you make it like Russiagate or Israelgate or, you know, the Gulf Gate, whatever. Right. Like the, all that money controls. Epstein our Gate. Exactly. 
Um, yeah, I don't know <laughs> I wonder what George Harwell would say about uh, Epstein. It's hard to say, but he put he puts that word positive in italics there. Yeah, I guess it positive in the sense that it's a tool that is extremely powerful, right? Right. But again, I guess I would say that like in in his moment, I would say that that's probably true. Yeah. But it's a question of perspective, especially mm-hmm. if you're going to bring in like Christianity, which is essentially was a book club that took down the most powerful empire on earth. Right. So at that moment, not very powerful, but pretty powerful group of people like in their own moment and socialism also which is like uh, like a burgeoning social movement at that time not doing that well then not doing that well now but if you like look at the horizons of what's necessary like especially right now i don't see how like like nationalism as a tool can uh um possibly combat something like climate change for example Oh, yeah. And well, I think that's like, for instance, the problem with Elizabeth Warren's uh, type of progressivism. And basically, this is why she's a progressive in the Teddy Roosevelt sense, right? Like that, like, you want to take on corporate power to the sense that you can be populist with that. uh, And then you basically don't have much to say about our growing empire. Yeah. Um, But I also want to say, like, you look at nationalism, just how, like, basically, Orwell's looking at the successes that nationalism has won yeah, and is thinking, how can we get some of that? Right. And, yeah. and, and it's sort of like, like Brexit for instance, right? Like just a complete nihilistic thing, but it's, we're Britain yeah, and we can be uh, Britain for Britain. It's an incredibly potent argument for a large swath of people that considers them like that's part of their identity. Yeah. And the make America great again thing. So yeah, let's, let's let, uh, or we'll develop this a little bit further here. I think my essay is down downloading. Um, oh yeah, well, I'll just continue reading Bound here um, before we get into it. Um, if the political background to Orwell's writings of, uh, on Englishness is comparatively well known, the same cannot be said uh, for the cultural uh, circumstances in which they took shape. Um, the consensus among Orwell scholars is that the shift towards patriotism was something wholly exceptional, a sort of intellectual quirk which distinguished Orwell from an interwar left that was somehow more internationalist in perspective. But the consensus is wrong. As Orwell knew perfectly well, an attempt to transfigure socialist politics with an infusion of English patriotism had been absolutely central to the left-wing culture of the 1930s. The most distinguished exponents of the new form of radical patriotism uh, were a group of intellectuals in and around the Communist Party, all of whom linked their concern with Englishness to the Communist Party of Great Britain's attempt to build a people's front against fascism. Oh yeah, and he says that the themes that um, tie Orwell's work with the work of the communists uh, about this... Um, uh, one, the idea that there was a complex mixture of liberal and socialist elements in the political outlook of English workers. Two, the assumption that the English workers were instinctively suspicious of theory. And three, the idea that sections of the middle class were now ripe for conversion to the left. Uh, the Elizabeth Warren thesis. Um, I well, mean, it's also Bernie, Bernie Sanders. Sanders exactly. Yeah, I, I don't want to be too. I yeah, think absolutely. This, I think this. this, I mean, that's why it's so applicable, this essay, but I think the 2020 results so far have like a lot to explain to us because we, you know, 2016, we're like, wow, look at all these like, like white uh, rural voters that Bernie is getting. And they mm-hmm. just evaporated in yeah. thin air. This, Absolutely. This go around. And it's like, maybe, maybe what people, and I think, you know, Sam Cedar and the majority report probably had, hits the nail on the head more frequently than not, which is like people's choices going into the voting booth have almost nothing to do with what you think they do. Yeah. They are not, um, political podcast consumers by and large. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'd be nice if they were, <laughs> it'd be nice if, you know, millions of Americans subscribed to literary hangover and they were conscious of this sort of thing. But most people dip in, 
a few seconds. I mean, first of all, it, I mean, it, yeah, people, especially um, who pay attention, it's hard to put yourself in the mind of someone who isn't. Yeah. Um, in that habit. Uh, but you're, it's very, it's, it's all socially determined. Like, look at this virus thing, right? Like up to like two weeks ago, people, certain people were like, yeah, no big deal. Jokes. And a lot of that stuff is like, frankly, like which, what media you're downstream of. Yeah. Are you watching Fox news? Are you watching? I mean, not to say that the other ones are that much more responsible. I mean, obviously Fox news is its own kind of, um, malignancy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah. Um, I think maybe like six years ago, I would have been someone who was much more like ready to like tut tut the average voter for not like, you should be paying attention, you know, like this is important. Yeah. But I think like the older I've gotten and like the more I like talk to like everyday people, I understand that like really a predilection towards politics is like essentially like a is a personal choice. Like it's like I, I do this because in some way it like. Or I, I like paying attention because I like the, I don't know, the entertainment of it. Or like, like it literally. Uh, yeah. And whereas like most people have to, like, you know, are like working all the fucking time. And the last thing they want to do is engage with like Kamala Harris's policy or yeah. Bernie Sanders like program. Well, it's like you have three types of uh, political tendencies. Let's simplify. You have leftist, liberal and uh, conservative I would call it fascist, but um, <laughs> uh, I think I think conservative basically for the meaning, sake of reaching out, we'll basically meaning the uh, the enforcing of hierarchy. Um, yes. But anyway, um, liberal is and, and there are two different approaches to democracy um, to those three things. One, um, the conservative is to suppress it. Uh, the liberal is to manage it, and the left has to be to cultivate it. And yeah. it's difficult to cultivate it when you don't have power. Yeah, I mean that's the main problem with the Democrats now is they just try to manage it. Um, yeah, I mean, look at Obama had the most amazing youth turnout. You were part of that. Yeah, um, and where are we now? Yeah, that the we've the entire party has aligned behind a guy who can't finish sentences anymore in an apparent way that's obvious if you just look at an interview from of him four years ago. Yeah, and now they're freaking out about shit. Are we going to be able to get you, young people out to vote? Well, I, I mean, I brought that, I thought about that earlier, which is like, you know, like my, my first voting experience, I think your first voting experience was the 2008 election. And literally we were like put on a pedestal by like the Democratic Party being like this youth vote will essentially guarantee us a century, a century, a century long rule uninterrupted. And I was kind of like, yeah, of course, you know, like yeah. 2008, 2012, I was like, yeah, we got this. Yeah. And then now to see it just, just 12 years later to see the party being like hollow, we've got to find a way to essentially put down this youth vote, which yeah. is like, that's all they're trying to do at this point. Yeah. And, um, yeah, there's that famous quote of Obama to the bankers, like I'm between you and the pitchforks. Yeah. I mean, he just massively disarmed democracy. The, or, yeah. Like the democracy in the, or the demos, you know, <laughs> in, if you want to go Greek about it, right? Yeah. He, he sedated it. It's weird. Cause it's like, I mean, this is a whole nother conversation, but it is, it is kind of like a, like someone who's as like willing to like jump in and, and take over like the most powerful country on earth as like a one term rep i mean he must have like a lot of like ego or like feeling about himself and then to just like he could have done whatever he wanted and then to walk in and be like all right i'm going to be bill clinton but two points to the left is like what the yeah fuck? yeah all right Citibank, who do i hire yeah exactly it's like you could do like at that moment as soon as his like election like you could do whatever you want you literally he literally like i can't think of any president in my lifetime maybe even in my parents lifetime that had as much like leeway to do whatever he wanted in like a six-month period well i uh Especially if he was a white guy. 
Yeah, I guess Honestly, that's like the major like that's difference. that's the problem with that is like we also did have the massive racist reaction yeah. to it that is being surfed on. Yeah, and I mean, I think Bernie and Obama are in like I, I don't, everyone wants Bernie to go at Joe Biden and basically call him senile and you know just go completely. He's a mess. Yeah, that's not who Bernie Sanders is, and it's yeah. I think for partial reason uh, Barack Obama wasn't that. Um, uh, is like you're the well you're you, basically I think they both think of themselves as examples and uh, they don't want to poison the well for people to come after them is the best reading on both of them that I think you could have on that mm. um, I, I mean that's why I mean Bernie's not gonna Bernie's gonna I mean he could have said people do care about your damn emails you've always been corrupt and I don't know why you're even on stage with me and he could have probably won the, the yeah. 2016 uh, thing and he didn't do that because frankly even though he's not of the party he's a man of the party still yeah like, it is a, yeah um but anyway we're kind of getting off track yeah. let's let's uh start with uh uh with this uh reading here this is wonderful blackstone publishing presents essays by george orwell 11 the lion and the unicorn socialism and the english genius part one england your england one as i write highly civilized human beings are flying overhead trying to kill me they do not feel any enmity against me as an individual nor i against them they are only doing their duty as the saying goes most of them i have no doubt are kind-hearted law-abiding men who would never dream of committing murder in private life on the other hand if one of them succeeds in blowing me to pieces with a well-placed bomb he will never sleep any the worse for it he is serving his country which has the power to absolve him from evil one cannot see the modern world as it is unless one recognizes the overwhelming strength of patriotism, national loyalty. In certain circumstances, it can break down. At certain levels of civilization, it does not exist. But as a positive force, there is nothing to set beside it. Christianity and international socialism are as weak as straw in comparison with it. Hitler and Mussolini rose to power in their own countries very largely because they could grasp this fact and their opponents could not. Also, one must admit that the divisions between nation and nation are founded on real differences of outlook. Till recently it was thought proper to pretend that all human beings are very much alike, but in fact, anyone able to use his eyes knows that the average of human behavior differs enormously from country to country. Things that could happen in one country could not happen in another. Hitler's June purge, for instance, could not have happened in England. And, as Western peoples go, the English are very highly differentiated. There is a sort of backhanded admission of this in the dislike which nearly all foreigners feel for our national way of life. Now, I do just want to say um, and just underline the fact that this is wartime propaganda writing, uh, right? Like, morale. This is actually one of the essays that put him on the map of the BBC. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, and I think you can easily see why. Europeans can endure living in England, and even Americans often feel more at home in Europe. When you come back to England from any foreign country, you have immediately the sensation of breathing a different air. Even in the first few minutes, dozens of small things conspire to give you this feeling. The beer is bitterer, the coins are heavier, the grass is greener, the advertisements are more blatant. The crowds in the big towns, with their mild, knobby faces, their bad teeth and gentle manners, are different from a European crowd. Then the... 
So, so this is about nationalism, so there might be a bit of racism in it, but he's doing racism against British people first, saying they have bad teeth. So <laughs> yeah. he's getting so that He out. said it, so now we can say so it. I can say this is a British man. Our teeth are. <laughs> have you seen him? That, you know, one of the things I loved about the UK, and I still haven't gotten over this, is you get used to the fact that people aren't obsessed with maintaining an insanely straight smile there. And it yeah. actually becomes like, oh, this could just be how humanity is, and it's fine. Yeah, rather than being like, it's great, everything's great. As yeah, subsidizing the dentistry with our anxiety, like fabricated anxieties. Yeah, the crowds in the big towns, with their mild, knobby faces, their bad teeth, and gentle manners, are different from a European crowd. Then the vastness of England swallows you up, and you lose for a while your feeling that the whole nation has a single identifiable character. Are there really such things as nations? Are we not 46 million individuals all different? And the diversity of it, the chaos, the clatter of clogs in the Lancashire mill towns, the to and fro of the lorries on the Great North Road, the queues outside the labour exchanges, the rattle of pin tables in the Soho pubs, the old maids biking to Holy Communion through the mists of the autumn morning— all these are not only fragments, but characteristic fragments of the English scene. How can one make a pattern out of this muddle? But talk to foreigners, read foreign books or newspapers, and you are brought back to the same thought. Yes, there is something distinctive and recognizable in English civilization. It is a culture as individual as that of Spain— it is somehow bound up with solid breakfasts and gloomy Sundays, smoky towns and winding roads, green fields and red pillar boxes. It has a flavor of its own. Moreover, it is continuous. It stretches into the future and the past. There is something in it that persists as in a living creature. What can the England of 1940 have in common with the England of 1840? But then... What have you in common with the child of five whose photograph your mother keeps on the mantelpiece? Nothing, except that you happen to be the same person. And above all, yeah. it is your civilization. It is... Uh, when, when, I, when I was saying earlier about how this is um, like one of the, the best examples of, like, of the, the essay and it's like as a form of writing, like that line is... Uh, incredibly persuasive as someone who's deeply skeptical of what he's talking about mm. being like there's a national character like if you're if you're born and raised in this nation you have certain characteristics that are that are immalleable and that you share with other people like in the same region and i'm like i don't know but then it's like even though you don't seem like it or like or that you share characteristics with people that were in the past in the same place like mm -hmm. it may seem different like the the photograph of you like on the mantelpiece which is both sentimental and also like distills it down to like a single person it's just like a brilliant piece of like literary propaganda yeah yeah it um one of the oh shoot i mean i can find that really quick here um, there's a review, a contemporary review uh, I want to mention here. And it, basically, he, 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 he makes that point of this isn't analytical writing. This is, um, oh, wait. Yeah, so uh, this is from George Orwell, The Critical Heritage. Dwight MacDonald in the Partisan Review, March 1942. Its approach to politics is impressionistic rather than analytic, literary rather than technical. That of the amateur, not the professional. Um, 
But Orwell's consciousness ex- embraces a good deal that our own Marxists have wrong- wrongly excluded from their data, though Marx himself most decidedly didn't. That's a very common thing, I feel mm-hmm. like, uh, in Marxism. Um, such th- uh, as that British army officers wear civilian clothes at blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so yeah, uh, I think I think that is the case. Like, this is like, it's literary writing, even though it's um, meant to be his, one of his more political tracks. It's it's in a number of his pieces, but probably most like virtuosically in this one, where it's he actually is like referring to a metaphysic without like ref, like referring to it that there's some sort of indescribable like form in in uh, nationhood, but he's describing it through like purely material uh, reasoning, being like, look, like look at the uh, the gloomy Sundays or the smoky towns or uh, the green fields and the red pillar boxes, like you are this and like like we you are the five year old, like that to me, like that's essentially just like platonic uh, uh idealism that he's talking about but yeah. he's not acknowledging that instead grounding it in your like your tactile reality that you see every day if you're an english person it's it's like a, it's almost like a sleight of hand it's quite uh ingenious however much you hate it or laugh at it you will never be happy away from it for any length of time the suet puddings and the red pillar boxes have entered into your soul good or evil it is yours you belong to it and this side the grave you will never get away from the marks that it has given you meanwhile england together with the rest of the world is changing and like everything else it can change only in certain directions which up to a point can be foreseen that is not to say that the future is fixed merely that certain alternatives are possible and others not a seed may grow or not grow, but at any rate a turnip seed never grows into a parsnip. <laughs> it is therefore of the deepest importance to try and determine what England is before guessing what part England can play in the huge events that are happening. 2. National characteristics are not easy to pin down, and when pinned down, they often turn out to be trivialities or seem to have no connection with one another. Spaniards are cruel to animals. Italians can do nothing without making a deafening noise. The Chinese are addicted to gambling. Obviously, such things don't matter in themselves. Nevertheless, nothing is causeless, and even the fact that Englishmen have bad teeth can tell something about the realities of English life. <laughs> Here are a couple of generalizations about England that would be accepted by almost all observers. One is that the English are not gifted artistically. They are not as musical as the Germans or Italians. Painting and sculpture have never flourished in England as they have in France. Another is that, as Europeans go, the English are not intellectual. They have a horror of abstract thought. They feel no need for any philosophy or systematic world view, nor is this because they are practical, as they are so fond of claiming for themselves. One has only to look at their methods of town planning and water supply, their obstinate clinging to everything that is out of date and a nuisance, a spelling system that defies analysis, and a system of weights and measures that is intelligible only to the compilers of arithmetic books, to see how little they care about mere efficiency. But they have a certain power of... The thing that kind of undercuts this is like I could very easily imagine someone saying this about America, right? Yes, like it's de- like astrology in that sense. I definitely think that there's like he his, him placing um, the UK's relationship with the continent of Europe is definitely I think analogous to how America feels about Europe, including the UK. Right. Acting without taking thought. 
their world-famed hypocrisy, their double-faced attitude towards the Empire, for instance, is bound up with this. Also, in moments of supreme crisis, the whole nation can suddenly draw together and act upon a species of instinct, really a code of conduct which is understood by almost everyone, though never formulated. The phrase that Hitler coined for the Germans, a sleepwalking people, would have been better applied to the English, not that there is anything to be proud of in being called a sleepwalker. But here it is worth noting a minor English trait which is extremely well marked, though not often commented on, and that is a love of flowers. This is one of the first things that one notices when one reaches England from abroad, especially if one is coming from southern Europe. Does it not contradict the English indifference to the arts? Not really, because it is found in people who have no aesthetic feeling whatever. What it does link up with, however, is another English characteristic which is so much a part of us that we barely notice it, and that is the addiction to hobbies and spare time occupations, the privateness of English life. We are a nation of flower lovers, but also a nation of stamp collectors, pigeon fanciers, amateur carpenters, coupon snippers, darts players, crossword puzzle fans. All the culture that is most truly native centers round things which even when they are communal are not official. The pub, the football match, the back garden, the fireside, and the nice cup of tea. The liberty of the individual is still believed in, almost as in the 19th century. But this has nothing to do with economic liberty, the right to exploit others for profit. It is the liberty to have a home of your own to do what you like in your spare time, to choose your own amusements instead of having them chosen for you from above. The most hateful of all names in an English ear is Nosy Parker. It is obvious, of course, that even this purely private liberty is a lost cause. Like all other modern people, the English are in process of being numbered, labelled, conscripted, coordinated. But the pull of their impulses is in the other direction and the kind of regimentation that can be imposed on them will be modified in consequence. No party rallies, no youth movements, no coloured shirts, no Jew-baiting or spontaneous demonstrations, no Gestapo either, in all probability. But in all societies, the common people must live to some extent against the existing order. The genuinely popular culture of England is something that goes on beneath the surface, unofficially and more or less frowned on by the authorities. One thing one notices if one looks directly at the common people, especially in the big towns, is that they are not puritanical. They are inveterate gamblers, drink as much beer as their wages will permit, are devoted to bawdy jokes, and use probably the foulest language in the world. They have to satisfy these tastes in the face of astonishing hypocritical laws, licensing laws, lottery acts, etc., etc., which are designed to interfere with everybody, but in practice allow everything to happen. Also, the common people are without definite religious belief, and have been so for centuries. The Anglican Church never had a real hold on them. It was simply a preserve of the landed gentry, and the nonconformist sects only influenced minorities. And yet they have retained a deep tinge of Christian feeling, while almost forgetting the name of Christ. The power worship, which is... Just a, a slight 
either pushback or I would have liked to see him like explore this idea a little bit more that the idea that the English people were not necessarily religious when they're the only country in Europe that a religious group took over their government and executed their uh, sovereign leader in public, I think. And then all of their major uh, literary artworks are from a, like a Christian perspective would really make like whether it's Pilgrim's Progress, Milton's Paradise Lost mm. or the King James Bible. The idea that it's not a particularly religious country compared to European nations like France or, or Germany, I just I, I, or Spain, I just find absurd. I find that that's an absurd claim. Yeah, do you think that's the case now, though? Because it's pretty secular. Oh, yeah, absolutely now. But I think if he's talking about English history, I think oh, right, they're right, maybe right. the most religious country yeah, yeah, in yeah. European history, with the exception of maybe Spain. Yeah, well, France, would like the Catholics in France, would they be compar- comparable? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they had like definitely like their own civil wars, uh, like with the Huguenots. But I just think that they're the only they had the only successful religious group to take over a government. Yeah, actually do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Of the landed gentry and the nonconformist sects only influenced minorities. And yet they have retained a deep tinge of Christian feeling while almost forgetting the name of Christ. The power worship, which is the new religion of Europe, and which has infected the English intelligentsia, has never touched the common people. They have never caught up with the power politics. The realism which is preached in Japanese and Italian newspapers would horrify them. One can learn a good deal about the spirit of England from the comic-colored postcards that you see in the windows of cheap stationers' shops. These things are a sort of diary upon which the English people have unconsciously recorded themselves. Their old-fashioned outlook their graded snobberies, their mixture of bawdiness and hypocrisy, their extreme gentleness, their deeply moral attitude to life, are all mirrored there. The gentleness of the English civilization is perhaps its most marked characteristic. You notice it the instant you set foot on English soil. It is a land where the bus conductors are good-tempered and the policemen carry no revolvers— In no country inhabited by white men is it easier to shove people off the pavement. (laughs) Isn't that such a crazy line? Yeah, that's pretty wild. In no, in no country, wait, where is it? Um, uh, uh, (laughs) Just as a way to like establish its bona fides of being gentle, gentle in no country inhabited by white men. Is it easier to shove people off the pavement? (laughs) So it's a bully's paradise. You can just walk into London and rule the place, basically. Yeah, but it also says, like, it also is a sort of, like, um, uh, there's a very sort of anti-colonial, um, inhabited by white men, like, you know, I mean, he had experience in the Raj as a police officer, right? Like, he understands what whiteness does across the world, basically. Yeah, he's seen the ferocity of, of whiteness and with imperialism. Yeah, um, which kind of, I mean, it's softest in the core, basically, the imperial core. Yeah, um, uh, yeah interesting. European observers as decadence or hypocrisy, the English hatred of war and militarism. It is rooted deep in history, and it is strong in the lower middle class as well as the working class. Successive wars have shaken it, but not destroyed it. Well within living memory, it was common for the redcoats to be booed at in the streets, and for the landlords of respectable public houses to refuse to allow soldiers on the premises. In peacetime, even when there are two million unemployed, it is difficult to fill the ranks of the tiny standing army. 
which is officered by the county gentry and a specialized stratum of the middle class and manned by farm laborers and slum proletarians. The mass of the people are without military knowledge or tradition, and their attitude towards war is invariably defensive. No politician could rise to power by promising them conquests or military glory. No hymn of hate has ever made any appeal to them. In the last war, the songs which the soldiers made up and sang of their own accord were not vengeful, but humorous and mock defeatist. I don't want to join the bloody army. I don't want to go into the war. I want no more to roam. I'd rather stay at home, living on the earnings of a whore. <laughs> but it was not in that spirit that they fought. The only enemy they ever named was the Sergeant Major. In England, all the boasting and flag-wagging, the rule Britannia stuff, is done by small minorities. The patriotism of the common people is not vocal or even conscious. They do not retain among their historical memories the name of a single military victory. English literature, like other literatures, is full of battle poems. But it is worth noticing that the ones... I mean, yeah, I don't know if it's like... It must just be... It's, I think it's just a shame that we don't have Grace here, someone who who, who grew up in this country. Because it's like, some of these lines, I'm like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Right. Like, you have literally Trafalgar Square in London. Or like, your greatest plays are like history plays of like Henry the fourth and Henry the fifth that are all about conquest. And you could say that, I mean, you could say there's like hidden commentary, which I mean, that's very possible, like against like, uh, um, like militarism or, or, or military glory. But it's like those, like once more into the breach, like is, is very rah, rah, like militaristic. And that is at the heart of English culture. What's once more into the breach. It's, uh, it's Henry the fifth, uh, by Shakespeare. And it's about the military conquest of, uh, of France at Agincourt. Like, I just, I don't know what he's talking about in that, in that instance. The only thing I, the only, and I don't know this, um, in the, especially for these specific examples. Um, but is there something to be said about, uh, the, the class makeup of the audience? And like he, if he's talking about basically the working class here, ver, sort of more popular classes versus like, a uh, intelligentsia or a more, sophisticated or upper class audience yeah that's where i don't i like i don't know where like these what i consider like english staples of culture like where it lands for workers and like in those same plays like falstaff is there too i guess is probably like an, an argument which is like very anti-militarism right like i mean because orwell like he famously i mean he does write about i don't know if he writes about shakespeare i don't remember it's in this essay because he, oh, he yeah. left that kind of trap open being like the english aren't good at the arts which anyone that makes anyone's like signal go up you're like writing right. writing and right, he's yeah. like he 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 circles back on that just to make sure he lets you know that like i know that you were worried about this but he he also likes to talk about the other the very lowbrow like um humorous postcards or boys yeah. weekly boys weekly um yeah. Uh, that sort of thing. But yeah, I, I take your point. One for themselves, a kind of popularity, or always a tale of disasters and retreats. There is no popular poem about Trafalgar or Waterloo, for instance. Sir John Moore's army at Karuna, fighting a desperate rearguard action before escaping overseas, just like Dunkirk, has more appeal than a brilliant victory. The most stirring battle poem in English is about a brigade of cavalry which charged in the wrong direction. <laughs> and of the last war, the four names which have really engraved themselves on the popular memory are Mont, Ypres, Gallipoli, and Pashkindale. 
every time a disaster. The names of the great battles that finally broke the German armies are simply unknown to the general public. The reason why the English anti-militarism disgusts foreign observers is that it ignores the existence of the British Empire. It looks like sheer hypocrisy. After all, the English have absorbed a quarter of the earth and held onto it by means of a huge navy. How dare they turn around and say that war is wicked? It is quite true that the English are hypocritical about their empire. In the working class, this hypocrisy takes the form of not knowing that the empire exists. <laughs> but their dislike of standing armies is a perfectly sound... That not knowing the empire exists, like... if you, Most people, if you're like, yeah, I'm an opponent, I, I, uh, I don't like Elizabeth Warren's foreign, or foreign policy because of its relationship to the American empire. They look at you like you're an insane person. Like yeah. You're talking about Star Wars or something. Yeah, that's very relevant, especially when, I mean... It's like, I mean, right now it's like the Iraq war essentially just didn't happen. Right. And anyone who says that, well, I mean, at best people would be like, it was a mistake, but no one would ever, I mean, the popular consciousness would not consider it a failed theater of empire. Yeah. Joe Biden can just lie about what his actual position on it Yeah, yeah. He time. actually, he actually voted for the president to, uh, because he didn't want the war to happen. I thought they were lying about the WMD, so I'm like, let's go to war and we're going to show them that we're lying. Yeah, I would and, definitely play cards with that fucking war yeah. on. Oh, God and say that war is wicked. It is the existence of the British Empire. It looks like sheer hypocrisy. After all, the English have absorbed a quarter of the earth and held onto it by means of a huge navy. How dare they turn around and say that war is... round and say that war is wicked. It is quite true that the English are hypocritical about their empire. In the working class, this hypocrisy takes the form of not knowing that the empire exists. But their dislike of standing armies is a perfectly sound instinct. A navy employs comparatively few people, and it is an external weapon which cannot affect home politics directly. Military dictatorships exist everywhere, but there is no such thing as a naval dictatorship. What English people of nearly all classes loathe from the bottom of their hearts is the swaggering officer type, the jingle of spurs and the crash of boots. Decades before Hitler was ever heard of, the word Prussian had much the same significance in England as Nazi has today. I've always found that So deep does this feeling go that for a hundred years past, the officers of the British Army, in peacetime, have always worn civilian clothes when off duty. One rapid but fairly sure guide to the social atmosphere of a country is the parade step of its army. A military parade is really a kind of ritual dance, something like a ballet, expressing a certain philosophy of life. The goose step, for instance, is one of the most horrible sights in the world, far more terrifying than a dive bomber. It is simply an affirmation of naked power, contained in it, quite consciously and intentionally, is the vision of a boot crashing down on a face. Uh, one of the things I really like about Orwell is this line, um, uh... I mean, as he's being bombed, uh, uh, undergoing the blitz and of, of dive bombers, he calls the goose step. The goose step, for instance, is one of the most horrible sights in the world, far more terrifying than a dive bomber. Simply an affirmation of naked power contained in it quite consciously and intentionally is the vision of a boot crash not in a face. Um, yeah, and then, but like, yeah, the power of, of, of that, um, uh, just like the aversion to people being controlled is more terrifying than the thing that can actually kill you. Yeah. And writing it while it's happening is yeah. just like only like confirms that kind of like bona fides of that argument. 
Its ugliness is part of its essence, for what it is saying is, yes, I am ugly, and you daren't laugh at me. Like the bully who makes faces at his victim. Why is the goose step not used in England? There are, heaven knows, plenty of army officers who would be only too glad to introduce some such thing. It is not used, because the people in the street would laugh. Beyond a certain point, military display is only possible in countries where the common people dare not laugh at the army. The Italians adopted the goose step at about the time when Italy passed definitely under German control, and, as one would expect, they do it less well than the Germans. The Vichy government, if it survives, is bound to introduce a stiffer parade-ground discipline into what is left of the French army. In the British army, the drill is rigid and complicated, full of memories of the 18th century, but without definite swagger. The march is merely a formalized walk. It belongs to a society which is ruled by the sword, no doubt, but a sword which must never be taken out of the scabbard. And yet the gentleness of the English civilization is mixed up with barbarities and anachronisms. Our criminal law is as out of date as the muskets in the tower. Over against the Nazi stormtrooper, you have got to set that typically English figure, the hanging judge, some gouty old bully with his mind rooted in the 19th century, handing out savage sentences. In England, people are still hanged by the neck and flogged with the cat-o'-nine-tails, both of these punishments are obscene as well as cruel, but there has never been any genuinely popular outcry against them. People accept them, and Dartmoor, and Borstal, almost as they accept the weather. They are part of the law, which is assumed to be unalterable. Here one comes upon an all-important English trait, the respect for constitutionalism and legality, the belief in the law as something above the state and above the individual, something which is cruel and stupid, of course, but at any rate incorruptible. It is not that anyone imagines the law to be just. Everyone knows that there is one law for the rich and another for the poor, but no one accepts the implications of this. <laughs> Everyone takes it for granted that the law, such as it is, will be respected and feels a sense of outrage when it is not. This is also true of America. Yeah. Remarks like... They uh, especially white people in America, I think, are... Uh, I think, like, America, the history of, you know, um, southern juries um, maybe have taught other groups differently, but... Yeah, I definitely think even as like as like popular understanding of, like, the government, like, your elected officials falling apart, like, I feel like Congress has had, like like record low approval for like 40 years, like mm -hmm. something like never it hovers around like 9%. Yeah. But I still think if you ask like the average American, like, you know, like going into their day of court, I think most would probably say that they feel like they, they will be heard and justice will be served in some way or the other. Yeah. And when it doesn't, it's like that this is not possible. Yeah, exactly. Rich and another for the poor, but no one accepts the implications of this. Everyone takes it for granted that the law, such as it is, will be respected and feels a sense of outrage when it is not. Remarks like, they can't run me in, I haven't done anything wrong, or they can't do that, it's against the law, are part of the atmosphere of England. The professed enemies of society have this feeling as strongly as anyone else. One sees it in prison books like Wilfred McCartney's Walls Have Mouths or Jim Phelan's Jail Journey in the solemn idiocies that take place at the trials of conscientious objectors, in letters to the papers from eminent Marxist professors pointing out that this or that is a miscarriage of British justice. 
everyone believes in his heart that the law can be, ought to be, and on the whole will be, impartially administered. The totalitarian idea that there is no such thing as law, there is only power, has never taken root. Even the intelligentsia have only accepted it in theory. An illusion can become a half-truth. A mask can alter the expression of a face. The familiar arguments to the effect that democracy is just the same as, or just as bad as, totalitarianism never take account of this fact. All such arguments boil down to saying that half a loaf is the same as no bread. In England, such concepts as justice, liberty, and objective truth are still believed in. They may be illusions, but they are very powerful illusions. The belief in them influences conduct. National life is different because of them. In proof of which, look about you. Where are the rubber truncheons? Where is the castor oil? The sword is still in the scabbard, and while it stays there, corruption cannot go beyond a certain point. The English electoral system, for instance, is an all but open fraud. In a dozen obvious ways, it is... Again, contemporary relevance. ...is gerrymandered in the intrabid, and while it stays there, corruption cannot go beyond a certain point. The English electoral system, for instance, is an all but open fraud. In a dozen obvious ways, it is gerrymandered in the interest of the moneyed class. But until some deep change has occurred in the public mind, it cannot become completely corrupt. You do not arrive at the polling booth to find men with revolvers telling you which way to vote, nor are the votes miscounted, nor is there any direct bribery. Even hypocrisy is a powerful safeguard. The hanging judge, that evil old man in scarlet robe and horsehair wig, whom nothing short of dynamite will ever teach what century he is living in, but who will at any rate interpret the law according to the books and will in no circumstances take a money bribe, is one of the symbolic figures of England. And I just want to say that um, American judges will take a bribe. Uh, yes, and pretty we've, directly. We've learned this, um, well, obviously, I would say Brett Kavanaugh's uh, baseball and gambling she's debts. A, she's a big baseball fan. That's just all. Loves, that, it's, uh, I can't think of a more American thing than that. Yeah. Um, and, or we go back to Ebenezer Cook uh, and the Sawweed Factor era. Um, uh, or even the uh, judge scene in the forthcoming Afro Ben uh, Widow Ranter yes. stuff. So um, I'd, I'd, I also think um, I don't know as much about the history of uh, British judicial system. I do know that Parliament is very, very corrupt, um, so I would imagine the judiciary might have its problems too, but anyway. He is a symbol of the strange mixture of reality and illusion, democracy and privilege, humbug and decency, the subtle network of compromises by which the nation keeps itself in its familiar shape. Three. Yeah, so I, I want to... Un- I want to see what you think about this section because a lot has happened. A lot of like uh, theories have been laid out mm-hmm. in rather quick succession that leave me uh, like with a bunch of loose ends. That this idea that the English people can't necessarily be kowtowed into some sort of like fascist movement because of certain beliefs in these abstract concepts of justice and things like that, mm-hmm. which he never says definitely which way he believes if it's real or not, but essentially hints towards the fact that they may be illusions. Right. Like, do you think that that 
that what he's saying is, do you think this is sustainable? Is he suggesting that this is a sustainable way for this country to live or to survive through this crisis? That is there enough gas in the tank for this like belief in injustice that it can last indefinitely or for like a limited amount of time before like the people, because if he realizes, it seems to have realized that there's a possibility that this whole system could be an illusion. That means that the people quote unquote, must not be very far behind him in like the grand scheme of things. Yes, I think he does think that. And I think that's what contributes to later in this essay, his uh, the idea that he thinks socialist revolution is imminent mm-hmm. is, is so probable. He thinks it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and not because of the intelligentsia, but just because of the natural sort of what was looked at as sort of a liberal, innate sort of populist, popular liberal liberality of the people is actually like the um, building blocks for actually socialism. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think he thinks that, um, uh, I think he thinks that it's like, it's like, uh, it's not so much a gas in the tank thing, but like a, a evolving into a new type of creature type of thing. Right, right. It is, it, it, it's very forward thinking. Like you hear these ideas echoed in different situations, I feel like with like, right at the end of like postmodernist literature with like David Foster Wallace and like that talking about like, we need to be like radically empathetic again, even if it's not real, mm-hmm. which I just think is like a higher level of cynicism. And it's, a, it has only proven itself to not be like a very sustainable artistic project in my opinion. Yeah. yeah interesting. Yeah. I'm, I want to read from this. Uh, this is from uh, Gregory Clay's, uh, the line in the unicorn patriotism and Orwell's politics from the Re- review of politics, 1985, um, a, f- a few introductions here. The, for just quickly, a, a few notes on the prior to writing Lion and the Unicorn. Um, he writes, uh, uh, before he wrote Lion and the Unicorn, uh, Orwell had briefly suggested three of its central themes. First, patriotism was not inherently conservative or reactionary, but might be expressed as a legitimate sentiment among those on the left. Second, patriotism alone would not prevent England's defeat, but instead... The social revolution must progress, uh, and here his Spanish ideals were uh, clearly carried forward. Uh, and third, and that's the thing, like Orwell wanted to fight a war and have a revolution at the same time in Spain, and he thought the communists, like especially Stalin, um, as controlled by Stalin, were a, a reaction against that. So what he wants is in Britain to do what they couldn't do in Spain, which is to fight the fascists and also have a socialist revolution. Um, and third, Orwell argued that, in fact, it was those who were most patriotic that were least likely to, quote, flinch from the revolution when the moment comes. And uh, Clay's continues, The Lion the Unicorn was first published in February 1941 at the height of the German bombing uh, of London as part of a new series of searchlight books whose intention was supposed to be uh, to uh, stress Britain's international and imperial responsibilities and the aims of a planned Britain at the head of a greater and freer British Commonwealth, linked with the United States and other countries as a framework of world order. And then, yeah, so here's a, a little bit more. Uh, in order to clarify Orwell's treatment of the English character and the relation of patriotism to socialism in The Line and the Unicorn, we must first briefly discover... We must first briefly consider Orwell's political development in the several years preceding the outbreak of war. For Orwell, the most important political event of this period was, of course, the Spanish Civil War, having been previously something of a, quote, Tory anarchist, Orwell, Orwell, Orwell called himself. Orwell became uh, slowly politicized during the early 1930s as both the result of his increasing contacts with the working classes and as the threat of fascism and war increased. 
Uh, his brief sojourn to, in Spain crystallized his political beliefs, however, and upon his return, he wrote in June 1937 that he had, quote, seen wonderful things and at last really believe in socialism, which I never did before, uh, end quote. Uh, to understand Orwell's views uh, in the early 1940s, it is important to emphasize that this belief was less the effect of an intellectual conversion uh, than the consciousness of the deeply moral, emotionally expressed egalitarianism of the common people in the midst of a revolution. Uh, though its spirit was quickly dissipated as the war progressed, an atmosphere of fundamental humanity and decency had pervaded Barcelona at the time Orwell arrived. People were trying to people were quote trying to behave as human beings and not as cogs in the capitalist machine. End quote. Anarchist barbers put up notices explaining that barbers were no longer slaves, while servile and even ceremonial forms of speech had disappeared temporarily. For Orwell, an avid student of forms of servility, East and West, domestic and imperial, this temporary lifting of the appearance of class oppression had an, extraordinary had an extraordinarily exhilarating and long-lasting effect. Um, Orwell's socialism hence emerges at virtually the same moment as his anti-totalitarianism, and from this time onward he would be concerned with outlining the basis for a non-Stalinist socialism, the clearest statement of which occurs in The Lion and the Unicorn. The differences between his evolving views and what he took to be the dominant trend in British Marxian socialism were clearly revealed in Orwell's highly controversial Road to, Riggin, Road to Wigan Pier, his account of uh, life among unemployed in the industrial north, which included a strong attack upon the existing social in, uh, intelligentsia. All right. All right, let's go back to the, uh, in, uh, the rest of this reading here. I have spoken all the while of the nation, <clears throat> England, Britain as though 45 million souls could somehow be treated as a unit. But is not England notoriously two nations, the rich and the poor? Dare one pretend that there is anything in common between people with 100,000 pounds a year and people with one pound a week? And even Welsh and Scottish readers are likely to have been offended because I have used the word England oftener than Britain. As though the whole population dwelt in London and their home counties, and neither North nor West possessed a culture of its own. One gets a better view of this question if one considers the minor point first. It is quite true that the so-called races of Britain feel themselves to be very different from one another. A Scotsman, for instance, does not thank you if you call him an Englishman. You can see the hesitation we feel on this point by the fact that we call our islands by no less than six different names. England. Britain. Great Britain, the British Isles, and United Kingdom, and, in very exalted moments, Albion. Even the differences between North and South England loom large in our own eyes. But somehow these differences fade away the moment that any two Britons are confronted by a European. It is very rare to meet a foreigner, other than an American, who can distinguish between <laughs> English and Scots, or even English and Irish. To a Frenchman, the Breton and the Auvignon seem very different beings, and the accent of Marseille is a stock joke in Paris. Yet we speak of France and the French, recognizing France as an entity, a single civilization, which in fact it is. So also with ourselves, looked at from the outside, even the Cockney and the Yorkshireman have a strong family resemblance. And even the distinction between rich and poor dwindles somewhat when one regards the nation from the outside, there is no question about the inequality of wealth in England. It is grosser than in any European country, and you have only to look down the nearest street to see it. Economically, England is certainly two nations, if not three or four. But at the same time, the vast majority of the people feel themselves to be a single nation, 
and are conscious of resembling one another more than they resemble foreigners. Patriotism is usually stronger than class hatred, and always stronger than any kind of internationalism. Except for a brief moment in 1920, the hands-off Russia movement, the British working class have never thought or acted internationally. This, to me, is the crux of the argument of the piece. Mm -hmm. That it's... Oh God, it's a cliche, but it's like the... Whatever it is, what is it? Uh, think global, act local, or something like that. Is that what they said? Right. That's like on every tote bag? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do think that is, in essence, his argument here. Mm -hmm. That, like, it, that nationalism is not something that you have to reject on your way towards internationalism but it's a piece of that like intellectual framework you're going to need to do anything of any value on an international scale i think is if i can like describe his argument i think is what it is and i think that is where especially for like leftists like that's the breakdown yeah where i think a lot of people would be like no you don't or like that's impossible essentially it's like it's like saying for some people it'd be like saying two plus two equals five to quote an orwellian phrase <laughs> Yeah, and but then there's, you also see what's driving this is, or what he uses as like evidence is the um, lack of interest in, especially the working class, in what's going on in other countries. This is it's it's difficult because um, it's definitely the case here, right? Like with Majority Report, we do foreign policy videos; um, those are low performers, right? right. Like the if 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 you tell me hey a video we put up last night got nine thousand views only, mm -hmm. uh, it's be like oh was it something we did on Bolivia or the right? And there's a it's very um, and there's also this thing of you know the Thoreau thing or or uh, was it Emerson where it's like about the telephone like well what if we don't have anything to say Thoreau yeah and the thing is is I think what we're realizing now is like. I think we do the problem with those the problem with us not caring is because what is our care mediated through? Mm. Uh is it mediated through the fucking Daily Mail and CNN? I think those things are designed to make you not care. But like we also see like and also in my perspective on this is warped. Obviously this is like a conversation of somebody who's it's hard to put your mind in people who aren't paying attention to politics, right? But like, yeah. you see things go viral that, like, I remember, um, like, like strike actions or something like that, or people walking off the job. Now, like, that can be put up on YouTube, mm -hmm. um, and people can sort of like share it for the righteousness of it. I'm of a, a bunch of minds about this because of that, because of those like conflicting things. Like, it's it, do people not care, or do you have to cultivate that care? How do you cultivate that? Like, I don't know. Yeah, I think like the leftist canard of like, you know, whenever there's some sort of disturbance happening uh, and it involves international politics, I feel like the, the, the leftist thing to say is that you have more in common with the worker in X country than you do with your leader in your country. Mm -hmm. And I think what this essay may be touching on is like, do you like, do you actually have like that may be true, like in a material sense, but in an emotional sense, in a sense of like who you feel like you are. Do you really have that much in common that you can bridge that gap immediately with, say, an Iranian on the brink of a war with Iran? And the word you used there just is perfectly explains the point. Immediately, of course, not immediately, right? Yeah. Like with the China thing and the, uh, the uh, protests there, right? Like generally supportive of protests, and, like right? And, and 
but you have this and Tibet in general, right, is a longer term version of this where um, the struggle, like you realize like uh, whatever the truth here and it might be a might be a valiant struggle, like it's being mediated through the voice of America and the CIA. Yes. Um, And that is and Syria was the exact same way. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's sort of the same rabbit or. uh, um, it's, it's, it's a rabbit hole and it, it's, it makes it more interesting that Orwell himself went and worked for the BBC, basically countering Nazi propaganda in India or doing pro- propaganda in India. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's in, in a lot of ways, you know, this written in 1941, you could almost say this is like a forerunner of like things like the Frankfurt school, which like, that was essentially like a, like a bunch of intellectuals being like okay so turns out that uh we didn't all like join together in like in global solidarity and their their big thing was like turns out culture is quite a big deal and i think orwell's saying that right here is like this is this is so obvious like to me in this moment like at at this heightened tense moment of world war ii that like this is the thing that's that you can't just it's not like a little pond you can jump across Mm -hmm. uh national identity it's something that you're actually going to have to harness if you want and to achieve you, it, you know, I, I have to just comment on like this. It 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 speaks to the core motivation of this podcast. Like hearing about the in the 1930s, the Communist Party of Great Britain in this popular front strategy was going back into history to reclaim like the ranters. Yeah. We are literally going to be talking about the ranters on the next episode, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Um, it feels important to do. Right, but yeah. um, spiritually important, but like it's obviously not sufficient, and it can obviously go wrong with certain like if certain things aren't considered. The British word patriotism is usually stronger than class hatred, and always stronger than any kind of internationalism, except for a brief moment in 1920, the Hands Off Russia movement. The British working class have never thought or acted internationally. For two and a half years, they watched their comrades in Spain slowly strangled and never aided them by even a single strike. But when their own country, the country of Lord Nuffield and Mr. Montague Norman, was in danger, their attitude was very different. (laughs) At the moment when it seemed likely that England might be invaded, Anthony Eden appealed over the radio for local defense volunteers. He got a quarter of a million men in the first 24 hours and another million in the subsequent month. Uh, there's a footnote uh, Orwell put that wasn't read there. To uh, the, for two and a half years, they watched uh, their comrades in Spain slowly strangled and never aided them by even a single strike. The footnote is: It is true that they aided them to a certain extent with money. Still, the sums raised for the various aid for the various aid Spain funds would not equal five percent of the turnover of the footballs pool of the football pools during the same period. This is a nice stat. <laughs> One has only to compare these figures with, for instance, the number of conscientious objectors to see how vast is the strength of traditional loyalties compared with new ones. In England, patriotism takes different forms in different classes, but it runs like a connecting thread through nearly all of them. Only the Europeanized intelligentsia are really immune to it. As a positive emotion, it is stronger in the middle class than in the upper class. The cheap public schools, for instance, are more given to patriotic demonstrations than the expensive ones. But the number of definitely treacherous rich men, the Laval-Quisling type, is probably very small. In the working class, patriotism is profound, but it is unconscious. The working man's heart does not leap 
when he sees a Union Jack. But the famous insularity and xenophobia of the English is far stronger in the working class than in the bourgeoisie. In all countries, the poor are more national than the rich, but the English working class are outstanding in their abhorrence of foreign habits. Even when they are obliged to live abroad for years, they refuse either to accustom themselves to foreign food or to learn foreign languages. Nearly every Englishman of working class origin. Again, this is very true of like the uh, the American traveler sort of stereotypes to the point where it makes me think that when China is looking back on their hundred years of world dominance uh, in you know twenty one hundred, they're going to have the exact same sort of experiences and um, attitudes towards the other countries uh, on the world. Yeah, and uh, and their special place in it considers it effeminate to pronounce a foreign word correctly. During the war of 1914 to 18, the English working class were in contact with foreigners to an extent that is rarely possible. The sole result was that they brought back a hatred of all Europeans, except the Germans, whose courage they admired. <laughs> in four years on French soil, they did not even acquire a liking for wine. The insularity of the English... Their refusal to take foreigners seriously is a folly that has to be paid for very heavily from time to time, but it plays its part in the English mystique, and the intellectuals who have tried to break it down have generally done more harm than good. At bottom, it is the same quality in the English character that repels the tourist and keeps out the invader. <laughs> Here one comes back to two English characteristics that I pointed out, seemingly at random, at the beginning of the last chapter. One is the lack of artistic ability. This is perhaps another way of saying that the English are outside the European culture. For there is one art in which they have shown plenty of talent, namely literature. But this is also the only art that cannot cross frontiers. Literature, especially poetry, and lyric poetry most of all, is... I mean, again, as a piece of rhetoric, that is <clears throat> brilliant because he, he brought it up earlier being like the, the English are not very good at art forms. And he goes, whether it's opera or sculpture, two things that are like, like even a lay person knows, like, you, like name an English opera. You're gonna, it's like a joke. You're going to be like, like, I don't know. The beggar's up. Yeah. yeah just something yeah. ridiculous. Um, uh, and then he left it hanging. Like he, any person knows that like the English people are known for like literature, if not anyone than Shakespeare. Right. And he's like, I'm going to leave it. And then he's like, oh, yeah. And then later on, like, whatever it is, like 10 pages later, he's like, oh, yes, of course. I do know about this. Guess what? It's the only art that can't be translated. And <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. like, as a reader, you're like, damn it. Yeah. God, you I got mean, me. It's true. Like, the Mona Lisa yeah. looks like the Mona Lisa in any language. Or music. Like, if you're like, yeah. anyone can listen to Beethoven. But unfortunately, like, if you're reading Shakespeare in German, it's going to be slightly bastardized. Right. The kind of family joke with little or no value outside its own language group. Except for Shakespeare, the best English poets are barely known in Europe, even as names. The only poets who are widely read are Byron, who is admired for the wrong reasons, and <laughs> Oscar Wilde, who is pitied as a victim of English hypocrisy. And linked up with this, though not very obviously, is the lack of philosophical faculty, the absence in nearly all Englishmen of any need for an ordered system of thought or even for the use of logic. Up to a point, the sense of national unity is a substitute for a world view. Just because patriotism is all but universal, and not even the rich are uninfluenced by it, there can be moments when the whole nation suddenly swings together and does the same thing, like a herd of cattle facing a wolf. 
There was such a moment, unmistakably, at the time of the disaster in France. After eight months of vaguely wondering what the war was about, the people suddenly knew what they had got to do. First, to get the army away from Dunkirk, and secondly, to prevent invasion. It was like the awakening of a giant. Quick, danger, the Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And then, the swift, unanimous action. And then, alas, the prompt relapse into sleep. <laughs> In a divided nation, that would have been exactly the moment for a big peace movement to arise. But does this mean that the instinct of the English will always tell them to do the right thing? Not at all. Merely that it will tell them to do the same thing. <laughs> in the 1931 general election, for instance, we all did the wrong thing in perfect unison. We were as single-minded as the Gardarine swine. But I honestly doubt whether we can say that we were shoved down the slope against our will. That um, that also has you know people wonder about votes like Brexit or um, nine eleven. I mean, it, it was true that not everybody was supportive of like the war and stuff, but like a huge part of the country, from like the elites obviously to like re regular people, were gung ho about that stuff or like supportive of it. But yeah, I, I mean. The, the the phrase that comes to mind, especially in this section, is like manufactured consent. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't see him parsing that so much. Like how much of like, you know, and the English people voted like for not their best interests or whatever. Right. How much of that is because like they, it, for me, it would have to be, I would need to see the English person vocalize that sentiment for that to be true in the way that he's saying it because because people like voters can be used as ventriloquist dummies very yeah. easily we see this with joe biden right like <laughs> yeah the people have voted they've unified behind joe it's like well they didn't for the last eight months yeah and they needed cues from the party like um and dropouts and you know specific like that sort of um, machination for it to happen because it did not happen like Joe looked horrible in Nevada yeah um, and yeah I, I totally totally agree um, yeah it reminds me of that like kind of disgusting phrase that like you know Americans get what they deserve like or it's like this is the president we deserve or whatever like in Trump or anytime something bad happens it's like well you guys voted for it and like more often than not the scenario is Who's ever in power that's punishing the people? Or he's punishing the people that either didn't vote or did not vote for him, and it's just like it just ignores that fact. And the people who elevated this leader into power uh, are just oblivious of that of of the damage that it's doing for the most part, or worse, they 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 know it. That that's like the the ugly cohort that wants <laughs> wants to hurt other people, basically. Uh, Jimmy Dore put a. Yeah. Uh, quote in Orwell's mouth. It's a fa it's a famous fake Orwell quote that is to that sentiment. Let's see if I can find it. So vote blue no matter who. That's Orwell actually. <laughs> uh, yeah, Jimmy Dore, twelve December two thousand seventeen. A people who elect corporate politicians, imposters, thieves, and traitors are not victims but accomplices. Yeah, that sounds quote, like George him. Orwell. <laughs> yeah, fuck you. Woo! <laughs> that uh, definitely sounds like him. God, yeah. Um. Uh, get money out of politics, George Orwell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is as close as he gets to saying that. Mm -hmm. And what's notable is to contrast this essay with later uh, 1984 and the differences um, with regards to his attitude towards the 
um, proletariat and the managerial class. Like O'Brien, obviously, the manager, just psycho. Yeah. Um, yeah. And how like how people are are coerced into like believing in certain things. Also, I think it becomes much more. He gets much more erudite with that concept in 1984 than he does right here. Yes. And here he's just saying he's like the people in. I don't know. I don't want to like mislabel. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like his argument is almost like there's something intrinsic to the English character that essentially is leading them to the quote unquote slaughter that has nothing to do with like how like the information they're being fed, like they're leading the, the average English person is leading the charge to like towards wherever they're going, which I think at least I don't know. That's how, that's how I read this page. Yeah, I don't know. I think he still is pretty clear that the British ruling class is in the driver's seat. But let's mm. I think we'll get to that actually coming up here. For instance, we all did the wrong thing in perfect unison. We were as single-minded as the Gardarine swine. But I honestly doubt whether we can say that we were shoved down the slope against our will. Oh, yeah. It follows that British democracy is less of a fraud than it sometimes appears. A foreign observer sees only the huge inequality of wealth, the unfair electoral system, the governing class control over the press, the radio, and education, and concludes that democracy is simply a polite name for dictatorship. But this ignores the considerable agreement that does unfortunately exist between the leaders and the led. I actually really uh, like this argument in the sense of, I think... There's a certain part of the left who is over-reliant on, you know, citing that Princeton study that, you know, we're actually an oligarchy and not a democracy. Yeah. As if, like, that, that and, like, no, democracy is a thing in a country, among a people, among people in the world in general, right? Like, it's people power versus oligarchy, right? That guy, when uh, Bloomberg entered the race and Jason Johnson's like, he's not an oligarch, don't call him that, and it's a misnomer in this environment. And then the guy, this guy that wrote a book on Greek oligarchy is like, no, he's exactly what an oligarch is. It's a rich people controlling the um, system. And then they also knew that opposed to that was people power, right? Like, mm-hmm. and that exists. To go to this part here, like, I, I the, the, the term black pill um, is basically like the, a nihilism because you think electoral politics doesn't, like, can't work. Yeah. And, like, I think, like, it's, it's, when I see people getting there because, you know, Joe Biden has taken the lead in delegates, it's like, you're a child. <laughs> like, well, it's kind of, it's like a weird. It's like a. It, it's it both overestimates electoral power and yes. underestimates it at the same time. It's like it's like I didn't believe this was going to work the entire time, yeah. and then like, <laughs> oh, like, it didn't work the way I wanted. Okay, cool. Fuck this. I did. I, I like. Yeah. Like actually, all my eggs were in that. Like, yeah. What's yeah. going on here? Yeah. Yeah. I, it's actually a point that you brought up. I don't know a long time ago, but just like in, before the pod, just having a normal conversation where you. We were talking about something and you said something about how like democracy as a defining term is really problematic that we should be talking about democratic power mm-hmm. because it's like having like is America democracy or not is kind of just like a sophist argument. It's, it's literally like, like a yeah, it's it's a prompt for like a high school essay. Yeah, it's like when and because like, the, the question is like when was it a democracy? When did it start? Right. Like, and that answer becomes really problematic. But if you look at it in a way of like there is democratic power within this country that is either growing or expanding at any given moment and always forcing the powers that be to react to yeah in the same way that there there's like there's a reactionary power there's a fascist power there's an oligarch power there's all these different powers that are in play at any given moment in this country it's like what what whose weight are you putting it behind like 
there's probably always going to be some democratic power in this country. It's just a question of like how much energy does it have behind it? And the problem is when you say we're, we're say like, Oh, we're a Republic. We're yeah. a constitutional Republic or we're actually this, we're actually that, or, you know, we're, we're a Republic matter. We're an oligarchy. It's like, you are just reifying that. Um, in, and basically doing the work for them. Like if, if, if I was a, a Republican, I would, um, I would want to like, or a conservative, uh, demo, or a corporate Democrat. I would want everyone to think like, yeah, there's actually nothing you can do with that socialism thing. Yeah. Like n- zero, like whether it's electorally or street actions, like we're going to dispirit all of that. Yeah. Because we're not that we're not, we're not like a democracy or whatever. Like we're just an oligarchy. Yeah, so why are you even doing it? Yeah. It's like an ontological impossibility, like your activity, essentially. The radio and education, and concludes that democracy is simply a polite name for dictatorship. But this ignores the considerable agreement that does unfortunately exist between the leaders and the led. However much one may hate to admit it, it is almost certain that between 1931 and 1940, the national government represented the will of the mass of the people. It tolerated slums, unemployment, and a cowardly foreign policy. Yes, but so did public opinion. It was a stagnant period, and its natural leaders were mediocrities. In spite of the campaigns of a few thousand left-wingers, it is fairly certain that the bulk of the English people were behind Chamberlain's foreign policy. More, it is fairly certain that the same struggle was going on in Chamberlain's mind as in the minds of ordinary people. His opponents professed to see in him a dark and wily schemer, plotting to sell England to Hitler, but it is far likelier that he was merely a stupid old man doing his best according to his very dim lights. It is difficult otherwise to explain the contradictions of his policy, his failure to grasp any of the courses that were open to him. Like the mass of the people, he did not want to pay the price either of peace or of war. And public opinion was behind him all the while, in policies that were completely incompatible with one another. It was behind him when he went to Munich, when he tried to come to an understanding with Russia, when he gave the guarantee to Poland, when he honored it, and when he prosecuted the war half-heartedly. Only when the results of his policy became apparent did it turn against him, which is to say that it turned against its own lethargy of the past seven years. Thereupon the people picked a leader nearer to their mood, Churchill, who was at any rate able to grasp that wars are not won without fighting. Later, perhaps, they will pick another leader who can grasp that only socialist nations can fight effectively. Mm. Do I mean by all this that England is a genuine democracy? No. Not even a reader of the Daily Telegraph could quite swallow that. <laughs> wow. England is the most class-ridden country under the sun. It is a land of snobbery and privilege, ruled largely by the old and silly. But in any calculation about it, one has got to take into account its emotional unity, the tendency of nearly all its inhabitants to feel alike and act together in moments of supreme crisis. It is the only great country in Europe that is not obliged to drive hundreds of thousands of its nationals into exile or the concentration camp. At this moment, after a year of war, newspapers and pamphlets abusing the government, praising the enemy and clamoring for surrender are being sold on the streets almost without interference. 
And this is less from a respect for freedom of speech than from a simple perception <laughs> that these things don't matter. It is safe to let a paper like Peace News be sold, because it is certain that 95% of the population will never want to read it. The nation is bound together by an invisible chain. At any normal time, the ruling class will rob, mismanage, sabotage, lead us into the muck, but let popular opinion really make itself heard, let them get a tug from below that they cannot avoid feeling, and it is difficult for them not to respond. The left-wing writers who denounce the whole of the ruling class as pro-fascist are grossly oversimplifying. Even among the inner clique of politicians who brought us to our present pass, it is doubtful whether there were any conscious traitors. The corruption that happens in England is seldom of that kind. Nearly always it is more in the nature of self-deception, of the right hand not knowing what the left hand doeth. And being unconscious, it is limited. One sees this at its most obvious in the English press. Is the English press honest or dishonest? At normal times, it is deeply dishonest. All the papers that matter live off their advertisements, and the advertisers exercise an indirect censorship over news. Yet I do not suppose that there is one paper in England that can be straightforwardly bribed with hard cash. In the France of the Third Republic, all but a very few of the newspapers could notoriously be bought over the counter like so many pounds of cheese. Public life in England has never been openly scandalous. It has not reached the pitch of disintegration at which humbug can be dropped. England is not the jewelled isle of Shakespeare's much-quoted message, nor is it the inferno depicted by Dr. Goebbels. More than either, it resembles a family, a rather stuffy Victorian family, with not many black sheep in it, but with all its cupboards bursting with skeletons. <laughs> it has rich relations who have to be kowtowed to, and poor relations who are horribly sat upon. And there is a deep conspiracy of silence about the source of the family income. <laughs> it is a family in which the young are generally thwarted, and most of the power is in the hands of irresponsible uncles and bedridden aunts. Still, it is a family. It has its private language and its common memories, and at the approach of an enemy it closes its ranks. A family with the wrong members in control. That, perhaps, is as near as one can come to describing England in a phrase. Uh, this paragraph and the next few are some of my favorites in here. But what do you? What's your reaction? Um, just just a note from uh, this this last section when he's saying it's the most class ridden uh, uh, country in Europe. I, I had the pleasure of being in London for a week or so with uh, my girlfriend, and we we toured. <laughs> this one point of uh, we toured um, uh, Buckingham Palace and mm -hmm. take the audio guide, and the audio, the royal family literally does the audio guide. <laughs> And uh, uh, Prince Charles gets on the gets on your audio guide, and he's like, "Welcome to my family's palace." And then he's like, "He's like, this is pretty rare because we're one of the last royal families in Europe, so this is a real treat." And it's like, <laughs> "Yeah, they're all dead. They've all been dead or or yeah. or removed from the country. Like, yeah, this it's, is it's, a, it's not a fun fact. This is a pretty big treat because you know in France they cut off our heads. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like yeah, like the Habsburgs were like literally dementiaed out of existence. Like it's." not it's not some like oh interesting which i think it might be for america like most americans might be like oh yeah that is what's weird you just treat it like that and then people treat it like that yeah i guess so yeah it's just like it was just like you literally are are on borrowed time right now but goddamn this part where it's um 
More than either, it resembles a family, a rather stuffy Victorian family, with not many black sheep in it, but with all its cupboards bursting with skeletons. Yeah. It has rich relations who have to be kowtowed to, and poor relations who are horribly sat upon. I mean, this is, this is again, the American thing, right? Like, um, they're... Like America, there's a lot of people extremely oppressed in America. We have like way higher child um, poverty rates to just name one metric than like most developed countries, and yet we're also the, you know, the most powerful country on earth. We just had a we just had a Italian billionaire donate uh, several hundred thousand respirators to this country for this virus. I mean, it's a, it's a failed state. Yeah, in many definitely, a hundred percent. Um, and, well, and then just to continue with the, the stuff that keeps like rhyming with now, poor relations who are horribly sat upon, and there is a deep conspiracy of silence about the source of the family income, um, <laughs> which is hilarious. Like in their case, the empire; in our cl- case, you know, the Monroe Doctrine yeah. um, and the uh, empire. Um, uh, it is a family in which the young are generally thwarted. Seems familiar. Yeah. Uh, so at, at this point in the primary, it's very true. Very true. Uh, and most of the power is in the hands of irresponsible uncles and bedridden aunts. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's continue with the uh, this next part, which is uh, this is a part that is always from the first time I read this essay stuck in my uh, um, stuck in my mind. Four. Probably the Battle of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Eton, but the opening battles of all subsequent wars have been lost there. (laughs) One of the dominant facts in English life during the past three quarters of a century has been the decay of ability in the ruling class. In the years between 1920 and 1940, it was happening with the speed of a chemical reaction. Yet, at the moment of writing, it is still possible to speak of a ruling class. Like the knife which has had two new blades and three new handles, the upper fringe of English society is still almost what it was in the mid-19th century. After 1832, the old landowning aristocracy steadily lost power, but instead of disappearing or becoming a fossil, they simply intermarried with the merchants, manufacturers, and financiers who had replaced them, and soon turned them into accurate copies of themselves. The wealthy shipowner or cotton miller set up for himself an alibi as a country gentleman, while his sons learned the right mannerisms at public schools which had been designed for just that purpose. England was ruled by an aristocracy constantly recruited from parvenus, and considering what energy the self-made man possessed, and considering that they were buying their way into a class which at any rate had a tradition of public service— One might have expected that able rulers could be produced in some such way. And yet, somehow, the ruling class decayed, lost its ability, its daring, finally even its ruthlessness, until a time came when stuffed shirts like Eden or Halifax could stand out as men of exceptional talent. As for Baldwin, one could not even dignify him with the name of stuffed shirt. He was simply a hole in the air. (laughs) mishandling of England's domestic problems during the 1920s had been bad enough, but British foreign policy between 1931 and 1939 is one of the wonders of the world. Why? What had happened? What was it that at every decisive moment made every British statesman do the wrong thing with so unerring an instinct? The underlying fact was that the whole position of the moneyed class had long ceased to be justifiable. Here we go. There they sat, at the center of a vast empire and a worldwide financial network, drawing interest and profits and spending them on what? 
It was fair to say that life within the British Empire was in many ways better than life outside it. Still, the Empire was underdeveloped. India slept in the Middle Ages. The Dominions lay empty, with foreigners jealously barred out, and even England was full of slums and unemployment. Only half a million people, the people in the country houses, definitely benefited from the existing system. Moreover, the tendency of small businesses to merge together into large ones robbed more and more of the moneyed class of their function and turned them into mere owners, their work being done for them by salaried managers and technicians. For long past, there had been in England an entirely functionless class. Living on money that was invested, they hardly knew where. The idle rich. The people whose photographs you can look at in the Tatler and the Bystander, always supposing that you want to. <laughs> The existence of these people was, by any standard, unjustifiable. They were simply parasites, less useful to society than his fleas are to a dog. By 1920, there were many people who were aware of all this. By 1930, millions were aware of it. But the British ruling class obviously could not admit to themselves that their usefulness was at an end. Had they done that, they would have had to abdicate. For it was not possible for them to turn themselves into mere bandits like the American millionaires, consciously clinging to unjust privileges and beating down opposition by bribery and tear gas bombs. After all, they belonged to a class with a certain tradition. That's an understanding of the American millionaires that has been completely wiped from history, or if it was ever on the side of the Atlantic, right? Like his conception that like the British oligarchy can't be as ruthless as the American ones. Like sure, if you know labor history in America, like yeah. you have Pinkertons and you know, suppression of um, strikes and stuff, of course, but you need to go out of your way to know about that stuff. Yeah, the ruthlessness of the American uh, billionaire is much more secret now. It definitely exists, but it's like, like Bezos, it's not one of, in like, Pierpont Morgan's, like one of his like, uh, like admirable uh, traits in the late 19th century was the fact that he did put down like uh, uh, massive amounts of, of labor unrest, whereas like uh, Jeff Bezos making workers in his factories wear diapers so they don't have to go on breaks that's trying that they try to hide that as much as possible yeah there's hold on uh there's a scene from silicon valley here protest um protesters outside here you're on the property back to the sidewalk you're gonna get arrested hello i'm you know a hundred years ago men like me could have had people like that killed just like that you think captains of industry like Andrew Carnegie or Cornelius Vanderbilt would have batted an eyelid? Please. Times sure have changed. Or have they? Of course they have. And for the better. Unless... All right, forget it. What are we doing about this article? Yeah, we'll we'll see on that one. We'll yeah. see like with the stress test with a certain number of billionaires. Like the American millionaires, consciously clinging to unjust privileges and beating down opposition by bribery and tear gas bombs. After all, they belonged to a class with a certain tradition. They had been to public schools where the duty of dying for your country, if necessary, is laid down as the first and greatest of the commandments. They had to feel themselves true patriots, even while they plundered their countrymen. Clearly, there was only one escape for them, into stupidity. They could keep society in its existing shape only by being unable to grasp that any improvement was possible. 
difficult though this was, difficult though this was, they achieved it, largely by fixing their eyes on the past and refusing to notice the changes that were going on around them. The entire democratic establishment class is those people. I mean, some of them know that you could do something, but a lot of them, like the, the, the idea that like half the candidates or more than that ran on, no, you can't Bernie. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, yeah. 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 And it's it's kind of like a trap too be for outside viewers because the worse it gets, the more intense the feeling of let's just go back to normal gets. Right. So it's like like I mean we're in the middle of this like we're like this uh virus thing and it's like I don't know how it's going to play out. Like it could be like a real repudiation of like Biden's like pick yourself up by your bootstraps and also I don't know something about like like uh, small businesses should get a loan or I have no idea. That was Trump. So Trump's basically like, everything's gonna be fine. Hope the markets are right. And uh, you know what? I don't have it. Um, And Biden's like, wash your hands. And you know, Trump shouldn't call it China virus. Yeah. He's racist. You guys forget about that. And Bernie's like, uh, people need to not, people shouldn't have to pay rent anymore until you sort this shit out, which is what you need. The only reasonable thing. But But you don't know like what, I don't know how that's going to play out yet. Like, I don't know if like yeah. they're, they're going to just put their head into the sand further being like, it's well, it's late. worse. So we should get even more normal. My suspicion. And I guess we'll find out soon is it's too late to, for that message to get out. But you know, people have a lot of time to sit at home and re watch <laughs> the politics. They haven't been paying attention to the last yeah, eight months to see true. how far fucking gone Joe Biden is. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm serious. <laughs> look, and I mean, you know, old be- I, the thing that I hate and the Trump administration does this, but also Democrats that don't want to like say, hey, um, Whole Foods workers should go on strike and or get paid a lot of money and get paid time off um, is they just repeat like basic safety information. Like, you know, it only affects old people, doesn't affect kids. Like you just go into that. They just yeah, name yeah. things. Right. Um, anyway, there is much in England that explains this. It explains the decay of country life due to the keeping up of a sham feudalism which drives the more spirited workers off the land. It explains the immobility of the public schools, which have barely altered since the 80s of the last century. It explains the military incompetence, which has again and again startled the world. (laughs) Since the 50s, every war in which England has engaged has started off with a series of disasters, after which the situation has been saved by people comparatively low in the social scale. (laughs) The higher commanders drawn from the aristocracy, could never prepare for modern war because in order to do so, they would have had to admit to themselves that the world was changing. They have always clung to obsolete methods and weapons because they inevitably saw each war as a repetition of the last. Before the Boer War, they prepared for the Zulu War, before the 1914 for the Boer War, and before the present war for 1914. Even at this moment, hundreds of thousands of men in England are being trained with the bayonet, a weapon entirely useless except for opening tins. It is worth noticing that the Navy, and latterly the Air Force, have always been more efficient than the regular army, but the Navy is only partially, and the Air Force hardly at all, within the ruling class orbit. It must be admitted that so long as things were peaceful, the methods of the British ruling class served them well enough. Their own people manifestly tolerated them, However unjustly England might be organized, it was at any rate not torn by class warfare or haunted by secret police. The empire was... And uh, that's, a, I think, basically a post-Napoleon thing is the, um, uh, what's his name, Metternich, Clemens von Metternich, the sort of Jager Hoover of uh, 
19th century Europe, or the first half. ...as of no area of comparable size has ever been. Throughout its vast extent, nearly a quarter of the earth, there were fewer armed men than would be found necessary by a minor Balkan state. As people to live under, and looking at them merely from a liberal negative standpoint, the British ruling class had their points. They were preferable to the truly modern men, the Nazis and fascists, but it had long been obvious that they would be helpless against any serious attack from the outside. They could not struggle against Nazism or fascism because they could not understand them. Neither could they have struggled against communism, if communism had been a serious force in Western Europe. To understand fascism, they would have had to study the theory of socialism, which would have forced them to realize that the economic system by which they lived was unjust, inefficient, and out of date. But it was exactly this fact that they had trained themselves never to face. They dealt with fascism as the cavalry general. This is, I just think this is exactly where our intelligentsia is at. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's something that, that Orwell reveals his genius in moments like this that I like even today like we still haven't hit the nail on the head which is like so, there's a, a characteristic of fascism that it is on the cutting edge and that's something yes. that I feel like even today like I just like you see it constantly like in like academia that sees like fascism like as like signaling some like older like very conservative form of government and yes it springs out of conservatism but in an avant-garde way yeah. it, it considers itself hyper-modern and it's something that like everyone about like seems to have forgotten about like whether it was like Hitler or Mussolini that they were embedded in modernist movements, right? Like futurist movements, like like yeah, I, futurism especially. Yeah, like I can't, I, I I get so frustrated, I like almost can't find the word sometimes. But like sometimes you see like like art historian here, like like Trump wants to create like I don't know like like uh, neoclassical uh, architecture, mm-hmm. and, like and that is a sure sign of fascism to come. And it's like I'm telling you right now. Like fascism in America, like artistically, will come out of the MoMA. Right. Like, it's <laughs> it's a bit of a hot take, but I I swear to you, Richard Spencer is like more interested in in like abstract art than he is in like uh, a Grecian column right now. Mm-hmm. Could not understand them. Neither could they have struggled against communism if communism had been a serious force in Western Europe. To understand fascism, they would have had to study the theory of socialism which would have forced them to realize that the economic system by which they lived was unjust, inefficient, and out of date. But it was exactly this fact that they had trained themselves never to face. They dealt with fascism as the cavalry generals of 1914 dealt with the machine guns, by ignoring it. After years of aggression and massacres, they had grasped only one fact, that Hitler and Mussolini were hostile to communism. Therefore, it was argued, they must be friendly to the British dividend draw. (laughs) Hence, the truly frightening spectacle of conservative MPs wildly cheering the news that British ships bringing food to the Spanish Republican government had been bombed by Italian aeroplanes. Even when they had begun to grasp that fascism was dangerous, its essentially revolutionary nature, the huge military effort it was capable of making... The sort of tactics it would use were quite beyond their comprehension. At the time of the Spanish Civil War, anyone with as much political knowledge as can be acquired from a sixpenny pamphlet on socialism knew that, if Franco won, the result would be strategically disastrous for England, and yet generals and admirals who had given their lives to the study of war were unable to grasp this fact. 
This vein of political ignorance runs right through English official life, through cabinet ministers, ambassadors, consuls, judges, magistrates, policemen. The policeman who arrests the Red does not understand the theories the Red is preaching. If he did, his own position as bodyguard of the moneyed class might seem less pleasant to him. There is reason to think that even military espionage is hopelessly hampered by ignorance of the new economic doctrines and the ramifications of the underground parties. The British ruling class were not altogether wrong in thinking that fascism was on their side. It is a fact that any rich man, unless he is a Jew, has less to fear from fascism than from either communism or democratic socialism. <laughs> Pretty true. One Quite the addendum. to forget this, for nearly the whole German and Italian propaganda is designed to cover it up. I think this, uh, this point about the, the fascist propaganda is very important, too. The British ruling class were not altogether wrong in thinking that fascism was on their side. It is a fact that any rich man, unless he is a Jew, has less to fear from fascism than from either communism or democratic socialism. One ought never to forget this, for nearly the whole German and Italian propaganda is designed to cover it up. The natural instinct of men like Simon, Hall, Chamberlain, etc., was to come to an agreement with Hitler. But, and here the peculiar feature of English life that I have spoken of, the deep sense of national solidarity comes in, they could only do so by breaking up the empire and selling their own people into semi-slavery. A truly corrupt class would have done this without hesitation, as in France. But things had not gone that distance in England. Politicians who would make cringing speeches about the duty of loyalty to our conquerors are hardly to be found in English public life. Tossed to and fro between their incomes and their principles, it was impossible that men like Chamberlain should do anything but make the worst of both worlds. One thing that has always shown that the English ruling class are morally fairly sound is that in time of war they are ready enough to get themselves killed. Several dukes, earls, and whatnots were killed in the recent campaign in Flanders. That could not happen if these people were the cynical scoundrels that they are sometimes declared to be. It is important not to misunderstand their motives, or one cannot predict their actions. What is to be expected of them is not treachery or physical cowardice, but stupidity, unconscious sabotage, <laughs> an infallible instinct for doing the wrong thing. They are not wicked, or not altogether wicked. They are merely unteachable. <laughs> Only when their money and power are gone will the younger among them begin to grasp what century they are living in. Uh, here, here. That that minor point about the ruling class seeming to, in in this English context, always being on the front lines. Like, to me, if that were happening in America, things like the Trump presidency could have a lot more gas in the tank if he sent like Eric Trump into Afghanistan or oh. something like that. Like that is red meat, I think, for this country to be like, look, look, I'm like sending my son to this project or well, whatever. One of the royal fa like royal family had a troop over there, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, the redhead one that yeah. everyone loves. Yeah. Like it, yeah. But it's like it's we're lucky that the American Imperial Project, they the the ruling class wouldn't dare <laughs> send their oh, children hell to, no. to go into that hellhole. Yeah, they just go on safaris. Five. The stagnation of the empire in the between-war years affected everyone in England, but it had an especially direct effect upon two important subsections of the middle class. One was the military and imperialistic middle class, generally nicknamed the blimps, and the other the left-wing intelligentsia. These two seemingly hostile types 
symbolic opposites, the half-pay colonel with his bull neck and diminutive brain, like a dinosaur, the highbrow with his domed forehead and stalk-like neck, are mentally linked together and constantly interact upon one another. In any case, they are born to a considerable extent into the same families. Thirty years ago, the blimp class was already losing its vitality. The middle-class families celebrated by Kipling, the prolific lowbrow families whose sons officered the army and navy... Orwell comes from this blimp class. Mm -hmm. ...all over the waste places of the earth from the Yukon to the Irrawaddy were dwindling before 1914. The thing that had killed them was the telegraph. In a narrowing world, more and more governed from Whitehall, there was every year less room for individual initiative. Men like Clive, Nelson, Nicholson, Gordon would find no place for themselves in the modern British Empire. By 1920, nearly every inch of the colonial empire was in the grip of Whitehall, well-meaning, over-civilized men in dark suits and black felt hats with neatly rolled umbrellas crooked over the left forearm were imposing their constipated view of life on Malaya and Nigeria, Mombasa and Mandalay. The one-time empire builders were reduced to the status of clerks, buried deeper and deeper under mounds of paper and red tape. In the early twenties one could see, all over the empire, the older officials— who had known more spacious days, writhing impotently under the changes that were happening. From that time onwards, it has been next door to impossible to induce young men of spirit to take any part in imperial administration. And what was true of the official world was true also of the commercial. The great monopoly companies swallowed up hosts of petty traders. Instead of going out to trade adventurously in the Indies, one went to an office stool in Bombay or Singapore, mm. And life in Bombay or Singapore was actually duller and safer than life in London. Imperialist sentiment remained strong in the middle class, owing to family tradition, but the job of administering the empire had ceased to appeal. Few able men went east of Suez if there was any way of avoiding it. But the general weakening of imperialism, and to some extent of the whole British morale, that took place during the 1930s, was partly the work of the left-wing intelligentsia, itself a kind of growth that had sprouted from the stagnation of the empire. It should be noted that there is now no intelligentsia that is not in some sense left. Perhaps the last right-wing intellectual was T. E. Lawrence. Since about 1930, everyone describable as an intellectual has lived in a state of chronic discontent with the existing <laughs> order. Necessarily so, because society as it was constituted had no room for him. In an empire that was simply stagnant, neither being developed nor falling to pieces, and in an England ruled by people whose chief asset was their stupidity, to be clever was to be suspect. If you had the kind of brain that could understand the poems of T.S. Eliot or the theories of Karl Marx, the higher-ups would see to it that you were kept out of any important job. The intellectuals could find a function for themselves only in the literary reviews and the left-wing political parties. In Patreon podcasts. And this is, this is something that he has been circling around for a couple of different essays that we've covered so far, like Shooting of an Elephant, talking about the kind of uh, um, the, the lethargy of the empire at the moment that he joined in to take part in it, like being able to note uh, quite acutely the the how little how little was left in this project that he was of a generation that saw it fading into uh 
uh, obscurity. And I think he outlines the pro- he, he I feel like in those essays, he never like diagnoses why he just acknowledges that it's happening. And right. this essay is a, it's a really like good macro look at the problem and being able to acknowledge that like this is where we were, this is where we're at, this is the problem, this is why it probably will no longer cease to be, which is a hundred percent correct on on that uh, yeah. analysis. It's such an interesting um, to see him historicize the recent um, decadence, I guess, and and how I mean, I remember reading a book on like China, and I mean, it's the same dynamics here. Whereas, like, if your parents were in the factories um, and got like middle class through that, um, the next generation isn't going to be satisfied with that, for yeah. instance, right? Um, and it it really does and the way the way he talks about intellectuals here it, it is all very materially determined um right like the core where the positioning and the material status of the empire basically determines um what uh the position of intellectuals um it's it's yeah it's quite brutal because mm-hmm. it's for, for someone with like a left perspective because what he's saying is just like well, like that you're not any real threat. They're just putting you in like a circle jerk, essentially. Right. Which is like something that I think like podcasters like ourselves have to sometimes Yeah, it's something, something to think about. It's like something to think about with like, I think The Daily Show is a good example of like, yes. how serious is like critique when the critique is built into the system? Right. Intelligentsia can be studied in half a dozen weekly and monthly papers. The immediately striking thing about all these papers is their generally negative, querulous attitude. Their complete lack at all times of any constructive suggestion. There is little in them except the irresponsible carping of people who have never been and never expect to be in a position of power. (coughs) Another marked characteristic is the emotional shallowness of people who live in a world of ideas and have little contact with physical reality. Many intellectuals of the left were flabbily pacifist up to 1935 to 39 and then promptly cooled off when the war started. It is broadly, though not precisely true, that the people who were most anti-fascist during the Spanish Civil War are most defeatist now. And underlying this is the really important fact about so many of the English intelligentsia, their severance from the common culture of the country. In intention, at any rate, the English intelligentsia are Europeanized. They take their cookery from Paris and their opinions from Moscow. (laughs) In a general patriotism of the country, they form a sort of island of dissident thought. England is perhaps the only great country whose intellectuals are ashamed of their own nationality. In left-wing circles, it is always felt that there is something slightly disgraceful in being an Englishman, and that it is a duty to snigger at every English institution, from horse racing to suet puddings. It is a strange fact, but it is unquestionably true that almost any English intellectual would feel more ashamed of standing to attention during God Save the King than of stealing from a poor box. All through the critical years, many left-wingers were chipping away at English morale, trying to spread an outlook that was sometimes squashily pacifist, sometimes violently pro-Russian, but always anti-British. It is questionable how much effect this had, but it certainly had some. This is uh, obviously another thing that's common and in self-criticisms of the left or anti-self anti-criticisms of the left um, or counter-criticism like the um, are we are we like too anti-american right like are we just like can we um i mean i think actually it's is we i common a common um sort of uh, uh obstacle in this vein is talking about the new deal um, in the sense that like the new deal was 
structure consciously intentionally like racist and misogynist yes um to set up basically an, an uh, extra state boost for uh white male patriarchy basically and it worked um but it also was a massively redistributionist uh um yeah. effort that like collapsed wealth uh inequality hugely and, and staved like a fascist takeover of this country right so it's like it and 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 it gets tricky because like you you basically realize what you're doing is uh tailoring your message based on what the audience so if you're trying to be a propagandist it's not always like useful to constantly like undermine that you want to do these sort of like state redistributionist policies with the historical, you know, um, it's like, it's like, what do they call it? Where you whip yourself? Self-flagellation. Uh, yeah. The self-flagellation. Like I, I think that I, but I also think it's like the reason that people did it in England and Orwell had to react to it. And the reason people do it here now is it's, it's, it comes with the territory of being a hegemonic power, I think. Um, I, I don't, I like, and it's, it is something like, I kind of, I, I like Orwell's take here, but I don't know if I could definitely, or would definitely feel comfortable reproducing it in our modern times. I think this, this series of paragraphs might be the weakest part of the argument that I think it relies on a lot of like, I mean, he talks about snickering of the left, but yet there's this incredible amount of snickering where it's like, you get your ideas from Moscow. It's like, Come on, right. like just because your your philosophy or whatever might be a little bit more cosmopolitan than the average Englishman doesn't mean you're literally getting things from the Kremlin, which I assume is the insinuation, like with that yeah. line. But there's also like the the sort of a Matt Stoller critique of democratic socialism. Um, you familiar with that? Yeah, he, he makes his bailiwick fairly often, um, or makes his argument fairly often, where it's like you know we have our own progressive roots here, but it's like. I mean, I've done some, I mean, obviously we've done some of that here, but I've, you know, looked at the, um, sort of the North Dakota progressive, um, party the, and you know, all that stuff's very interesting, but it's also like you, you ultimately do have the issue of like, you do need to make this more egalitarian and universal. Yeah. Um, well to tie it back to a previous episode that we did when we talked about, um, the Bacon's rebellion where it's like. When you co-opt the past to try to mm-hmm. bring in some like revolutionary concept, you you're I think you said you're not inviting you're inviting people to the party that necessarily you don't want to be there, assuming that it's completely under control and under your own uh like that it's under your own discretion who comes and who doesn't. Yeah. So it's like bringing in the New Deal, like I, I like let's say in this non hypothetical, yeah, Bernie Sanders should probably talk about how he's like a true Democrat. I bet that would probably win over a, lo- a bunch of like moderates. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you're bringing in a whole lot of baggage that everyone, no one, like the stolers of the world, don't think is going to come up. And right. it's just, it is like it's yeah. like redlining is invented by the New Deal. Exactly. I'm yeah. sorry, like the Ku Klux Klan were supporting like FDR. Right. That's so, just a fact. Yeah. This, this, this uh, the Southern Democrats were. Like not just part of the coalition, but some of the leadership people. Yes. Like, yeah, 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 and that's not, and it's. I mean, that's a part of history, and that's a part of like this podcast. That's quite complex because, like, like yes, FDR did more for African Americans in this than any other president since Lincoln, maybe. 
Mm-hmm. And but yet he did it off the backs of the support of white supremacists, right? And that is all there when you invoke that, yeah. And it's like when people talk about like you know like Bernie is like he, he refers to himself as like an, a European like uh, democratic socialist, and that has its own problems. It's like as if bringing up America's history doesn't have a whole heap of problems the moment that you bring it up that they just right. don't think will happen, and of course it will happen. Yeah, yeah. On the other side, like you do see the overcorrection where it's like. During the government shutdown, right? Well, it's, it's just the American government. Like, yeah, what yeah. the fuck is that shit? Well, like, <laughs> guess, like, guess what, motherfucker? That is an incredible t- piece of technology for, like, making people have good jobs, right? Yeah. Like, um, and yeah, so I think, like, that's why you don't want to overcorrect, but we also understand why people correct in the first place. Yeah. Well, I remember what that professor was. It's like, we should, I don't remember who it was, but he was like, Tweeted out being like, yeah, we should shut down the government for good. And it's like, yeah, woo! God, yeah. <laughs> Come on, man. Ral, trying to spread an outlook that was sometimes squashily pacifist, sometimes violently pro-Russian, but always anti-British. It is questionable how much effect this had, but it certainly had some. If the English people suffered for several years a real weakening of morale so that the fascist nations judged that they were decadent and that it was safe to plunge into war, the intellectual sabotage from the left was partly responsible. Now, leftists at the time, really, that's yeah. the thing that they really took issue with. Like, you think we emboldened Hitler by criticizing this shit? And I think that's a, uh, that's a line I would strike from that. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. you have to ask, like, where would Orwell be with, like, like in with that same logic, where would he be with like uh, like Malcolm X or or yeah. MLK in the South? I mean, I guess to be fair, he was one of those. Uh, let's see. I mean, he was definitely like one of the critics, right? Like he, two of his most um, uh, popular essays from that time period are are sort of critical looks at the British Empire. So he's demor he's he was one of the demoralizers that yeah. would have. Um, so, like, I don't know if this is him being self-critical. Like, it doesn't seem... It's not... The tone isn't self-critical here. But knowing what he was actually doing and what he's written, like, it is. It's his self-criticism. But there are escape hatches even in those essays, if I remember correctly. There are mm-hmm. still lines about, like, it's horrible what the British Empire did. But However, it's not as bad, yeah. Yeah, it's not as bad as, like, say, I don't know, what the French or whatever. Take and and that's... Uh, and I think he he comes back to that those popular characteristics of English people. Yeah. And, and yeah, another, um, you know, iffy uh, argument. Let's continue. 10 years of systematic blimp baiting affected even the blimps themselves and made it harder than it had been before to get intelligent young men to enter the armed forces. Given the stagnation of the empire, the military middle class must have decayed in any case, but the spread of a shallow leftism hastened the process. It is clear that the special position of the English intellectuals during the past ten years, as purely negative creatures, mere anti-blimps, was a byproduct of ruling class stupidity. Society could not use them, and they had not got it in them to see that devotion to one's country implies, for better, for worse. Both blimps and highbrows took for granted, as though it were a law of nature, the divorce between patriotism and intelligence. If you were a patriot, you read Blackwood's magazine and publicly thanked God that you were not brainy. If you were an intellectual, you sniggered at the Union Jack and regarded physical courage as barbarous. It is obvious that this preposterous convention cannot continue. The Bloomsbury highbrow, with his mechanical snigger, is as out of date as the cavalry colonel. A modern nation cannot afford either of them. 
patriotism and intelligence will have to come together again. It is the fact that we are fighting a war, and a very peculiar kind of war, that may make this possible. The final section of this part. Six. One of the most important developments in England during the past 20 years has been the upward and downward extension of the middle class. It has happened on such a scale as to make the old classification of society into capitalists, proletarians, and petite bourgeois, small property owners, almost obsolete. This was another part uh, that was commented on a lot. Um, but Orwell is not a pioneer here in terms of, um, you know, saying that this the, our class system is not just industrial proletariat and it, and peasants and that sort of stuff. It's getting more complex, um, which is something that we're still preoccupied with today, right? Especially as, you know, DSA isn't um, welders. No. Right. England is a country in which property and financial power are concentrated in very few hands. Few people in modern England own anything at all, except clothes, furniture, and possibly a house. The peasantry have long since disappeared. The independent shopkeeper is being destroyed. The small businessman is diminishing in numbers. But at the same time, modern industry is so complicated that it cannot get along without great numbers of managers, salesmen, engineers, chemists, and technicians of all kinds, drawing fairly large salaries. And these in turn call into being a professional class of doctors, lawyers, teachers, artists, etc., etc. The tendency of advanced capitalism has therefore been to enlarge the middle class and not to wipe it out as it once seemed likely to do. But much more important than this is the spread of middle class ideas and habits among the working class. The British working class are now better off in almost all ways than they were 30 years ago. This is partly due to the efforts of the trade unions, but partly to the mere advance of physical science. It is not always realized that within rather narrow limits, the standard of life of a country can rise without a corresponding rise in real wages. Up to a point, civilization can lift itself up by its boot tags. However unjustly society is organized, certain technical advances are bound to benefit the whole community because certain kinds of goods are necessarily held in common. A millionaire cannot, for example, light the streets for himself while darkening them for other people. Nearly. But wait until we have streetlights that are programmed to only turn on when a Tesla is coming down the street. Or if you have a certain credit rating. <laughs> we could get into this now or we could... Can, this, this... Outside of his kind of... His portrait of the of British leftist, this might be like the... I think the weakest part. And the part that's been the most refuted in the current world that we're living in. Because it just... This thing of like... Like, well, like, capitalism has seemed to have done a pretty good job, even if the raises or wages aren't raising, the standard of living, standard of living seems to be rising in a, like a... Well, and he credits technology, specifically. In, in a yeah. technological and a scientific way. Right. And yet, we live in the most scientific, the most technologically advanced age right now, and all of those things are rapidly disappearing. Mm -hmm. And it's... It's of and uh, when he says like part union, part science, like there are no unions right now. It's like eight percent or something of the country. It's a, it's a statistical anomaly. Yeah. And yet science, quote unquote, whatever that happens to be, is at its zenith right now. And the standard of living is either flatlining or going down. And I, I think, again, we get to the thing where he thinks this revolution is inevitable, that this yeah. managerial class is going to 
overthrow the owners. And guess what? We still have owners of all this shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. And actually, we'll we'll get to it a little bit later, but um, he does even revise this part a little bit with his his portrayal of O'Brien in 1984 as... I mean, I'll just read from this. Um, um, this is from this uh, article earlier, Glahey's. Uh, oh, yeah. The principal explanation given the future role of the intelligentsia, uh, the sections of Emmanuel Goldstein's theory of oligarchical collect- collectivism are taken almost entirely from uh, this guy Burnham's work, who Orwell reviews. In 1984, we are told that the foundation of the society described had relied upon the control of the, quote, new aristocracy, made up for the most part of bureaucrats, scientists, technicians, trade union organizers, publicity experts, sociologists, teachers, journalists, and and professional politicians. This class had been shaped uh, and brought together by the barren world of monopoly industry and centralized government. And what was most striking about it was that compared with their own opposite numbers in past ages, they were less avarice, less tempted by luxury, hungrier for pure power, and above all, more conscious of what they were doing and more intent on crushing the opposition. Uh, though the life of outer party members was itself barely comfortable, this group was central to maintain maintenance of power in the novel. Um, yeah, I think like basically they, they, they don't become a revolutionary force. They just inhabit the ruling class and that decadence, um, you get a bit of dynamism like the post-war years, but the exact same pattern of decadence repeats itself mm-hmm. or, and has repeated itself. Citizens of civilized countries now enjoy the use of good roads, germ-free water, lease protection, free libraries, and probably free education of a kind. (laughs) Public education in England has been meanly starved of money, but it has nevertheless improved, largely owing to the devoted efforts of the teachers, and the habit of reading has become enormously more widespread. To an increasing extent, the rich and the poor read the same books, and they also see the same films and listen to the same radio programs. And the differences in their way of life have been diminished by the mass production of cheap clothes and improvements in housing. So far as outward appearance goes, the clothes of rich and poor, especially in the case of women, differ far less than they did 30 or even 15 years ago. As to housing, England still has slums, which are a blot on civilization, but much building has been done during the past 10 years, largely by the local authorities. The modern council house, with its bathroom and electric light, is smaller than the stockbroker's villa, but is recognizably the same kind of house, which the farm laborer's cottage is not. A person who has grown up in a council housing estate is likely to be, indeed visibly is, more middle class in outlook than a person who has grown up in a slum. The effect of all this is a general softening of manners. It is enhanced by the fact that modern industrial methods tend always to demand less muscular effort and therefore to leave people with more energy when their day's work is done. Many workers in the light industries are less truly manual laborers than is a doctor or a grocer. In tastes, habits, manners and outlook, the working class and the middle class are drawing together. The unjust distinctions remain, but the real differences diminish. The old-style proletarian collarless, unshaven, and with muscles warped by heavy labor, still exists, but he is constantly decreasing in numbers. He only predominates in the heavy industry areas of the north of England. After 1918, there began to appear something that had never existed in England before, 
people of indeterminate social class. In 1910, every human being in these islands could be placed in an instant by his clothes, manners, and accent. That is no longer the case. Above all, it is not the case in the new townships that have developed as a result of cheap motor cars and the mm. southward shift of industry. The place to look for the germs of the future England is in light industry areas and along the arterial roads in Slough, Dagenham, Barnet, Letchworth, Hayes. Everywhere, indeed, on the outskirts of great towns. The old pattern is gradually changing into something new. In those vast new wildernesses of glass and brick, the sharp distinctions of the older kind... It's so funny that he mentioned Slough. I was just going to name check that. Yeah, yeah, go for it. <laughs> because, you know, in uh, The Office, the Ricky Gervais British version, Slough is the setting. Or no, yeah. it's not, is it the actual setting? Yeah. This next song is about the greatest place in the world, Slough. Yeah, um, the British office takes place in Slough. Right, and as like a suburban hellscape that, yeah. that nothing happens in Slough. I mean, talk, I mean, what a brutal commentary for yeah. it to show up in this essay to be like, like maybe the future of England is in a town like Slough. And then, I mean, we're talking 50 years later. Right. It's, it's purgatory. It's hell. That's suburbs for you. Yeah. That he, that it's something that he couldn't... I mean, he can only see so far, but mm. like that, that that is... He was right for a while. Yeah. But that is like that town now is globally famous, if people don't even know the town, yeah. as the depiction of ennui. Right. Uh, the depiction of like downward mobility, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> More of the country, with its manor houses and squalid cottages, no longer exist. There are wide gradations of income, but it is the same kind of life that is being lived at different levels, in labor-saving flats or council houses, along the concrete roads and in the naked democracy of the swimming pools. It is a rather restless, cultureless life, centering round tinned food, picture post, the radio, and the internal combustion engine. It is a civilization in which children grow up with an intimate knowledge of magnetos and in complete ignorance of the Bible. Mm. To that civilization belong the people who are most at home in, and most definitely of, the modern world. The technicians and the higher-paid skilled workers, the airmen and their mechanics, the radio experts, film producers, popular journalists, and industrial chemists. They are the indeterminate stratum at which the older class distinctions are beginning to break down. So basically, this war, um, before we finish the last paragraph, that the way he said, like, you know, the feudal aristocracy intermarried with the capitalist, new capitalist aristocracy, basically what's happened, and he didn't recognize this, but instead of being replaced by the bureaucratic aristocracy, the bureaucratic aristocracy and the um, ownership aristocracy and the um, what remained of the fuel aristocracy just intermarried themselves and became the exact and and went through the exact same pattern. Yeah, they are the indeterminate stratum at which the older class distinctions are beginning to break down. This war, unless we are defeated, will wipe out most of the existing class privileges. There are every day fewer people who wish them to continue. Nor need we fear that as the pattern changes, life in England will lose its peculiar flavor. The new red cities of Greater London are crude enough, but these things are only the rash that accompanies a change. In whatever shape England emerges from the war, it will be deeply tinged with the characteristics that I have spoken of earlier. The intellectuals who hope to see it Russianized or Germanized will be disappointed. The gentleness the hypocrisy, the thoughtlessness, 
the reverence for law and the hatred of uniforms will remain, along with the suet puddings and the misty skies, it needs some very great disaster, such as prolonged subjugation by a foreign enemy, to destroy a national culture. The stock exchange will be pulled down. The horse plough will give way to the tractor. The country houses will be turned into children's holiday camps. The Eton and Harrow match will be forgotten, but England will still be England. An everlasting animal stretching into the future and the past, and, like all living things, having the power to change out of recognition and yet remain the same. And uh, that's the end of the first part here. Um, yeah, not right that the stock exchange will be pulled down or that Eaton and Harrow uh, match will be forgotten. So, yeah, um, again, overly optimistic uh, um, Orwell that thought revolution was just around the corner. Um, but, uh, yeah, go ahead. And, and also just, I don't know, like, I'm curious. We've kind of, like, we've been talking about it for a while now, but, like, you know, this idea that Englishness is something that is will exist in perpetuity, I just, not just Englishness, but just national character, I'm deeply skeptical of that. And I think that some, like, when we're living through something like Brexit, to me, that's not an... That's not a vote of confidence in the uh, the British character as much as it seems like it, rather than a very defensive measure for something that whatever Britishness is that this electorate is reacting violently against about something that's about to disappear. Like, I, I just don't think it's I just don't see it like any more than Americanism, whatever that is, is intrinsic that can live on its own without some sort of like, uh, uh, and, like consent guiding it somewhere mm -hmm. you think like britain is basically at the end of the re like uh what or like you think this is coming to an end i th i think so now i mean and not just britain i think i think like any like like the idea of like the nation state and the national identity essentially mm -hmm. is not it's something that i think he gave a lot of credence to in this essay that i just kind of think was something fairly new that showed up that won't last much longer i don't know or it could i i just see i think i think we, i don't know i think we're going back into it i mean i think like you look at like modi um in fucking india and just how like that's just nationalism and they're he's crushing it with nationalism there yeah and uh, i uh orban similar thing in hungary uh erdogan in yeah. turkey obviously sure. um like i and i think like w yeah what they actually appeal to is it's 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 hard to say like if we're just talking about the um persistence of state powers and not like a people right like yeah i think he collapses the two slightly in this essay right yeah i, I and to me i think what it really is it's like it's a solipsism of speaking to your own people mm -hmm. um where you act like this is something like this is something intrinsic to us but it's it's really not it's really something like wider right like we we like the reason that um i like this essay isn't because of what it tells me about britain yeah. it's because of what it tells me about america right now yeah yeah um and yeah like from that the the, the specific specificity is uh, i think a failure and and i think it it trips him up the entire entire way from yeah how much he likes to generalize and how much power he wants to give them over the course of recent history. Elsewhere in this Philip Bound book on uh, Orwell, 
he makes a distinction between patriotism and nationalism in mm-hmm. that nationalism is offensive and patriotism is defensive. And like from that sense, the Brexit thing kind of still makes sense. Like they don't know what they're defending it against really, but like, it is like, I mean, the European union was a progressive force. I mean, it wasn't carried out that way by yeah, progressive yeah. people, but right. But you can find actually in other or essays of Orwell's that, um, that we should seek to have a European nation of states. And mm-hmm. um, unfortunately he says like Moscow and America won't like that. Um, and ultimately what <laughs> ironically was um, uh, what doomed that is uh, at least for Britain, but you know, I mean the UK leaving the Euro is a huge hit against it was british nationalism yeah absolutely i think it's like the defining like force that that got them that got brexit passed so it's like it's a motivating force still but not a progressive one yeah 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 and 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 in the sense like you wish it were more progressive because then maybe perhaps british voters would have been more interested in preserving the nhs for nationalistic reasons than they were in you know um leaving a trade union um yeah i it, it it doesn't it does it does not appear to be as easily utilized for the left I yeah guess we yeah can definitely I think it's definitely something that like yeah it's is the conclusion and I've, I've been reading um ulysses again for the millionth time uh but uh he's he's a slightly older contemporary of of orwell but i do think he kind of uh comparing these two texts that there's there's similar ideas going on whereas you know, Joyce was a notorious exile of Ireland, yet only exclusively wrote about uh, Ireland. And I think that Orwell nails it in this too, when he says like, where you were raised and where you're grown up, like, that's just like, that's just part of you. And you, you can't really rebel in that in a serious way, which I think is a very serious and interesting critique for like international leftists, where it's like, you essentially are English or you are American, no matter how much you try to rebel against that. And I think Joyce understood that as well. Someone who is uh, uh, rigorously uh, European, but uh said famously like ireland's not in my blood but it's in my bones Mm -hmm. but yet still when he made his work even though his work was just about ireland it happened to have this like european and in fact global like uh connotation which is like why for example like finnegan's wake is a bestseller in china translated for some reason like there's there's a way i think or i have to believe in like certain forms of art there's a way to like get to where orwell is and go through it also, which I think is maybe what he's arguing also. That's like you have to go through nationalism to get to internationalism. I don't know. And I would argue, I mean, that the way I think 1984, the nice, the, what I like about the comparison is 1984, I think, addresses some of our concerns about, you know, his faith in the managerial class, for mm-hmm. instance. And um, and so like 1984 is a massively international book. Um, mm-hmm. uh it was literally Samizdat uh, uh, on the other side of the Iron Curtain, like, um, which is, I mean, what more could you want from a, as a leftist literary figure? So, mm-hmm. um, but I think like this wasn't, I, I don't think like this wasn't republished until 1968. Yeah. Uh, so this, this version wasn't going through you know, Vienna into Moscow. Uh, yeah, yeah. Under some, like, newspapers or something like that, right? Like, it wasn't yeah. being smuggled. I think he would say that that wasn't... He, 
it's not for an international audience exactly, at this moment. Yeah. Yeah, by design, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, anything else you have to say on this? Um, I think that's all I got. Very varied, uh, but interesting work. One of my favorites, especially the way he talks about um, how dumb the uh, ruling class has gotten. Because I think, I think that is uh, possibly recurring, folks. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, anyway, Alex, I wanted to thank you. Yeah. Um, we will uh, return to this at some point. When I, uh, Michael, I, I did give Michael Brooks a copy of this uh, too. Um, there's two more parts, Shopkeepers at War and uh, The English Revolution. It um, only gets uh, better, actually, if I, if I remember correctly. I don't remember the next two parts as well, but uh, I look forward to it. So, uh, Alex, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, listeners, if you can, uh, if you are, you know, cool through this pandemic. <laughs> um, <laughs> what a stupid time. Like, what honestly, a stupid time to be alive. Like if, like, yeah, for some reason, you know, uh, you can afford now to go to patreon.com slash literary hangover. Uh, we appreciate it. And uh, we will come back with a um, widow ranter. And I'm going to be eventually hope to start streaming soon. I think I might have some time to do so. Um, and uh, we will see you next time, folks. Bye. <laughs>